Welcome to the Bear Hug Experience, where we cozy up to the fire in our digital den and immerse ourselves in the inspiration born from exploring the hidden narratives and inevitable plot twists that shape every compelling startup journey. Join us as we showcase inspirational guests from bold investors with the Midas touch to pioneering entrepreneurs at the helm of today's most thrilling startups. We'll also hear from courageous go-to-market leaders navigating the frontier of emerging tech and the unsung heroes bringing all the people and parts together to form unstoppable dream teams. Here's your host, Craig Ward, founder and managing director of Bear Hug Recruiting. Get ready for an insightful journey. The following is a conversation with Jake Brawley, the Chief Revenue Officer of Crisp.ai, the world's first AI-powered call and meeting assistant software that enhances voice communication through audio cleansing, noise cancellation, accent localization, call transcription, and summarization. Crisp processes over 75 billion minutes of voice conversations each month, helping thousands of businesses deliver better business outcomes. Jake has a proven track record of driving new venture creation, market development, and revenue growth for technology businesses. Prior to CRISP, Jake served as the head of global marketing and strategic alliances for Highspot, playing a vital role in guiding the company's valuation from $50 million to over $3.6 billion, in addition to notable roles at companies such as Aptio, K2 Software, Microsoft, and IBM. Welcome to the Bear Hug Experience. And now, dear friends, fellow entrepreneurs, investors, and startup enthusiasts, here is Jake Brawley. Jake, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. How are you? Good. All right. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I remember when I first met you, I'm always so keen to pay attention. If I do a project, a search project, and I put 100 people on the list, one of my favorite parts about being a recruiter is I will reflect at different stages of the search, and I'll look back and I'll go... Who were the people that were just outstanding personalities and highly skilled experts? And you just stood out so strongly for me. So why don't we start by sharing with our listeners a bit about the mission that you're on and what you're up to today? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here as well. The mission that I'm on right now is kind of the mission that I've been on in the last several jobs that I've had and really throughout my career. but. My primary job is what I would call to identify and scale revenue growth. And that journey has taken me to kind of earlier and earlier stage uh, ventures through my career, but I've done it at very big companies, was at Microsoft for a while. Um, But core to my job and any of the roles that I've had is really that identification of where can can we drive revenue growth? And then once we've identified how to drive it, how do we scale it? And so that's really my focus. That's my focus today. I work for a company called Crisp, Crisp with a K, dot AI, um, currently in the capacity of a chief revenue officer. And uh, so I oversee all of the go-to-market operations from marketing to sales uh, to customer success. And so really the kind of full spectrum uh, of the funnel, if you think about it that way. All right. Can you just add a high level, just give us a quick kind of one or two liner on the purpose of CRISP? 
Yeah, the, the purpose of CRISP is really to, to make digital voice communication more effective and to make people more productive in voice conversations. And so conversation we're having right now, uh, you know, we, we uh, increase the fidelity of the audio by eliminating all background noise. So you're not hearing anything in my environment. Uh, that works inbound and outbound, by the way, so I'm not hearing anything in your environment. And that increases communication effectiveness. We also summarize and transcribe the conversations uh, using generative AI. And we also have technologies that can even translate uh, an accent. So you take a non-English speaker's accent and translate it into a native English speaker's accent. And that we can do that real time. So there's, there's a spectrum of different capabilities. But at the end of the day, it's all about better digital voice communication. That's really cool. I love that. Well, let's um, talk for a moment about how you are wired to have, <laughs> you know, gone through sort of the big companies experience with the Microsoft and worked your way into smaller and smaller startups. You've obviously developed certain superpowers that you probably identified. I'm sure if I asked people that knew you really early on would say, yes, those were present at an early age, right? But you've developed them over time. So how would you identify and how would you label the superpower or superpowers that give you this unique ability to perform this kind of a function? Yeah, that's always a, <laughs> the superpower question is always a little bit tricky for me, but I'll answer it. And first by saying, I think the super passion is, is maybe the most hmm. important. And so for me, like, the one consistent theme throughout my career, even as a young child, I can remember, um, is my super passion for building business and creating uh, from from a blank canvas. That that to me is the fun part, um, and it's really where I thrive. And so it's creative application, really, is the way I see entrepreneurship, if you want to call it that. But uh, for me, that's my super passion, and then. The superpowers that I kind of have to ask my colleagues, okay, well, what would you say are my strengths? And then, of course, you know, I think about where are my opportunities for growth. But mm -hmm. um, one of my colleagues, uh, and I'm not a Harry Potter fan, and I'm not, I don't know much about the Harry Potter universe, but he said, he called me the sorting hat. And I said, well, what on earth is a sorting hat? Is that a, is that a compliment or how should I take that? Um, and what what he meant by that is I do have an ability to kind of, I'll say, compartmentalize things and put them into the right place. And for highly complex go-to-markets where you're delivering, you know, multiple products with deep technology into multiple segments, um, having a skill of kind of how things wire together and how things relate to one another, um, I, I do think that that serves a really important purpose. Uh, in the realm of kind of software and, and B2B go-to-market. And so that served me well. And I think part of it is, you know, I, I trace it back to like uh, my undergrad experience. I went to the University of Colorado. I remember one of the most difficult classes I took was a, was a class uh, in, in database design. Hmm. It was actually in the business school, but it was a, it was kind of notorious for being the, the, the most difficult class in the business school. And I remember being in there and I just wasn't getting it and I wasn't getting it, which was strange for me because usually I could I could pick up things pretty quickly. And it was so frustrating. And then it was like, 
the the light switch flipped on and all of these concepts in deep normalized relational database design just kind of clicked for me hmm. and it's really really kind of that aha moment and for me that was kind of an unlock and and i think it's also important in the application in the business world because in the go-to-market like i said it's not just identifying the revenue and where you need to and where you need to drive revenue growth but it's also how you scale it and so you have to be thoughtful about architecting processes how things fit together uh so that you you're thinking three four clicks ahead in terms of how something you're doing today can be scalable and growthful in the future and so that would that's kind of the way i would articulate my what you're calling the superpower but i think <laughs> most important for success is that super passion and so i think it has to start mm. with there and, and the alignment of the super passion with the superpower i think is where you're going to be most successful and that's that's certainly been the case with my career i love how you brought the super passion into it i i totally agree and um yeah the super power i guess is kind of more of a competency right um, if you were That's to right. try to label, like if you were to not call it a sorting hat, because I don't relate with that either. <laughs> um, I don't know what that is. Yeah. I, yeah. Had to ask, I had to ask GPT what it was. And it, it told me like, <laughs> I'll actually tell you because I, I think that'll help break it yeah. down a little bit. But it said it, yeah. it talks about identifying customer needs in the context of B2B software. It's like, hey, GPT, what does sorting hat mean in the context of B2B software? Because I didn't know. Um, it, it means segmentation and identification of your ideal customer profile. It means predictive an analytics. It means resource allocation, you know, how much investment are you putting where, and adaptability. Mm. And so I, after I did the GPT, I went back to my friend who called me this morning, and I said, hey, is this, is this what you meant? <laughs> of course, we were, both like, we were both like, wow, yeah. GPT is pretty amazing. Uh, but yeah, that's, those, are, those are kind of the ideas of what, what he meant when he was calling me the sorting hat. So well, that's Another a, it's great application for generative AI. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I would have, um, I would have said that's bang on. You know, in terms of taking a requirement for what a CRO in an early stage company has to do, like those are all the things. So, absolutely, no surprise that those are competencies that you you fill your superpowers and that they're fully you know formed at this point and continuing to hopefully improve. So, you know, the the interesting conversation around the flip side of a superpower. Or even maybe a super passion. I don't. I don't know. Maybe somebody could be overly passionate to a fault. Maybe, but um, you know, the kryptonite could be looked at in a couple of different ways, right? It could be um, things that, you know, like Superman holding the green rock in the pool, right? Like yep. it, it sucks him down. It, it drains his energy. So those could be market forces. They could be politic politics inside of a company culture. It could be, you know, it could be something personal to you. So I'm asking it in a broad sense, but I'm hoping to you know talk about it more generally and also on a more personal basis because I think we're all human, right? So we have multifaceted personalities. And I think we have things that get us really, really jazzed up and things that really do just get in the way, suck our energy and, and maybe even trip us up just because they're strengths to a fault sometimes. So to give people a holistic mm -hmm. yeah. view Interesting. Of, of, the flip, of the flip side, what, what would you define are your kryptonites? Well, I'll go, I'll go with the flip side of the super, I'll call it the super anti-passion, I guess, first. <laughs> sure. uh, and then I'll talk about the, the kryptonite and the kind of uh, areas of opportunity for me. Um, but I think you, you kind of mentioned a few of them for me, which are like my big anti-passions, which is anything that's kind of uh, politically motivated uh, uh, within an organization. It's just, it's just counterproductive uh, in my experience. Um, 
it's a sign of dysfunction in in the way that a company works if it's if there's a lot of political agenda and focus um, and bureaucracy. You know, I, I I if there's too much overhead and processes just are there because they've been there and they haven't been revisited and nobody's really thinking about it, just going through the motions. For me, that's where my energy starts to drain. So I'll call the I'll call those my anti passions. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of my anti-competencies or things that maybe, like you said, my superpowers where they actually don't serve me, um, I, you know, along the lines of the sorting hat, I've been accused of being, you know, very analytical and very logical, which I think is funny because I don't picture myself that way. I, I do have a pretty high quantitative aptitude, but I don't, I don't look at myself and, and think, wow, I'm really like, I need to see the numbers. But the one, the one, uh, I'll call it, um, watch out that I've had to have, especially throughout the last roles of my career uh, in earlier stage ventures, is being too uh, dependent or focused on data to make decisions. Hmm. And so, you know, I think about, and this is partly because I also came from uh, the school of hard quant uh, performance management at Microsoft for, for six years. You know, it used to be kind of the joke that Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, the CEO at the time, would would kind of take you to math camp and uh, you have to be able to hold up, hold up in that environment quantitatively. And so it's very, very much focused on the numbers, measurement, analytics. And I, I developed a deep appreciation for that, but there's also a risk in that. Uh, you become too data dependent and you are uh, what I would call like data driven rather than data informed. And the reason that that can be dangerous for an early stage organization is because you don't necessarily have enough data to make it relevant, or you might be uh, picking up signs that actually are the wrong indicators because causation and correlation are not always. So um, for me, that's where the you know the quantitative focus and the aptitude can potentially get me into trouble if, if I read too much into the measurement and the analytics or uh, you know that that becomes a requirement before making decision and, and it causes paralysis. And so that's that's where mm-hmm. I would say my potential kryptonite is sitting on the flip side of my um, on my competencies. And you know my role at Microsoft, by the way, I was I was managing a one and a half billion dollar Windows operating system business and reams and reams and reams of data related to that business. Right? You can just imagine how much. Windows OS was being sold at that time and all of the measurements that Microsoft had available to them. So you were just swimming in data. And so it was super important in that role. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you try to apply that in other roles that just doesn't just doesn't apply uh, because <laughs> you're just not dealing with the same kind of data set. And it can be it can be actually dangerous if you read too much into that data. Well, that's so funny because that's actually what I think people in larger companies, they have resources, they have just tremendous, like more data than they could ever know what to do with. And at a startup, you're like, uh, where's the data? <laughs> so that's, uh, it's fascinating that you, it seems like that strength that you've been able to develop coming from that world and then going to startups where that data isn't as easily readily available in the quantity that you might want. You have to make decisions a lot quicker on less of the data, right? So you're more informed about that's exactly it. exactly so. right. Yeah, no, that's so fascinating. What a cool trajectory. So we'll get into that now here in more detail. So I'd like to have you do an exercise for me that you might remember we did three years ago, because I've been doing it for a while with every candidate that I first reach out and talk to. Um, 
I want you to give our listeners a window into your origin story. Hmm. So from the moment that you're born, your entire life story up until the present moment. I know it's a lot to ask, but that's what's so fun about it. So whatever whatever comes up, like there's no way you could prepare for this because I'm asking you to jam it all into a, a time cap of five minutes. But I want you to tell me your entire life story from the oh. moment you were born up until today in five minutes, just to see just to see what you choose to share, because it will give us a lot of fun things to kind of dig into after you're done. So look at the clock, hold yourself to your own time cap. I'm not going to stop you. Um, let's see what happens. All right. The timer start, starts now. I'm actually, cool. uh, I'm a comic book aficionado, so uh, I love the the origin story theme kind of reminds me of all of yeah. the superheroes, their, their origin stories, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah tell, me, yeah. tell me I'm your hero's journey. Tell me your hero's journey. <laughs> the hero's journey. That's right. That's right. So um, let me just say one of the most formative things that happened to me in my life was when I was very young, I was five years old and I had a younger sibling that was born with cerebral palsy, uh, my sister Katie. And for me, just from a life impact, um, and and how that would form basically everything in my, in my view of life and my approach to life um, was really impacted in growing up as a sibling uh, of someone uh, who was confined to a wheelchair, required you know full full care, uh, feeding, clothing, bathing, uh, but but mentally fully there uh, and, and you know a key part of our family, um, it just created a lot of challenges and it, I'll call it adversity in a sense that, you know, there, there's a lot of limitations as a family, things we couldn't do. And I think very early on, the the impact of that for me was is kind of a view where you have to, you almost have to for survival, look at things, not from a, what are the problems and limitations, but what are the solutions? Um, and, and so, I, you know, I would articulate it as like, and I actually believe this as a mantra, right? right? No problems, only solutions. It's a solutions oriented mindset. And it's easy to say that, but really this was embedded deep into my DNA really early in my childhood because of the fact that uh, as a family, there, there could be a lot of things you were limited in doing or as a sibling and interacting with a, with a disabled sibling, there's a lot of potential limitations in that relationship and uh, having a solution-oriented mindset really is, is a, was a key survival skill. And so I'm very thankful and grateful for having grown up um, and also just seeing my parents who really provided, uh, were the primary care providers and, and watching them and their solution-oriented mindsets really try to give my sister the fullest possible life uh, that she could have. And so that I think was a was a kind of my origin story on a personal level that's important because it, it definitely carries over to my professional career. The other aspect, though, and along the lines of the solution orientation with my sister and her disabilities, was that my parents were always looking for things to enable her to overcome those uh, disadvantages, and and. So very early on, they looked to, you know, at the time, which would have been emerging technologies, bleeding edge technologies. I remember we had the first Macintosh computer. You know, we were always in our home. We always had the latest technology uh, primarily to uh, to look for ways to help my sister with adaptability and accessibility 
in leveraging modern technology to overcome some of her uh, disadvantages and, and things that she was unable to do. And so I very early on as well just had a deep appreciation and infusion of technology and what it what its impact on a person's life uh, could look like. And so you carry that over into my career and kind of where I spent most of my time in technology. I think that's part of my affinity to this to this space is that you know whether you're disabled or quote unquote able, we all have disabilities and abilities. Um, technology really is an enabler uh, to help humans do things that you may not otherwise be able to do. And so for me, that's just a kind of my my core underlying passion. Why I spend a lot of time in technology. Now, from a professional standpoint, like I said before, I've always just had a passion for business creation. Um, yeah, I went to, to school uh, as an undergrad at University of Colorado. I uh, had a focus on business, information systems, and finance. Um, and I graduated right in the midst of all of the dot-com frenzy at the time. I actually had a senior professor said, hey, uh, why don't you Come join me and some colleagues. We're gonna we're gonna go build a startup because that's what you're supposed to do. Put a business plan together and get funded. And right as we were sitting across from our VCs, uh, Silicon actually this was uh, yeah Silicon Valley uh, Boulder actually Boulder Colorado smaller venture niche venture. We had our term sheet there. Uh, it was about to be signed, and then everything kind of exploded. And so you know the, the landscape was hey there aren't any jobs. Uh, and as a new grad, I had to to go out and make a job. So you called what you would call like an entrepreneur by necessity, right? I had to I had to get a paycheck, and so uh, I started leveraging my skills in technology and IT and applying those to small businesses. And I built a consulting practice and built that for three and a half years. And then I had a hard decision: I could keep doing it, or I could sell it and uh, go back to school and learn about venture. Back startup, which is a little bit different than the kind of organic startup that I had been building with my consulting practice. So I made that decision, um, sold the business, went to, to University of Michigan, which at the time had one of the, and still does have have one of the the um, really leading entrepreneurial programs in the business school, um, a student-led venture fund, a lot of great resources with their Zell Lurie Entrepreneurial Institute. And so I thought there was no better place to go for two years to learn about VC-backed startup. And that was kind of an anomaly at the time, right? Like I remember going there and my, my classmates were saying, hey, why are you going to business school when you want to be an entrepreneur? You're supposed to drop out of school to do that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the mentality today is a lot different, right? Um, every big program has entrepreneurial investment in their, in their business schools, and in part because that's where their endowments are coming from, of course. Uh, but at the time, it was a, it was a little bit of a different thing to, to be going to focus uh, in an MBA program on entrepreneurial business. Um, I'll, I, I know I'm at my time now, so I'll summarize kind of. I think that's the interesting part of my origin story, the the, the bulk of it right there. And then from my graduation, uh, it, you know, I went and got a job at Microsoft. I thought I'd be there for a year. A year turned into six uh, for a lot of good reasons. I was learning a lot. Uh, a lot of autonomy, great culture at Microsoft, a lot, a lot to be learned is kind of my post-MBA MBA. And uh, since leaving Microsoft, I've had a you know, series of different earlier stage 
technology roles and primarily in the capacity of, uh, like I said before, identifying and driving revenue growth at scale. So hopefully I didn't go too far over my time, but I think the, the more interesting part is the bulk of the story there. I'm happy to talk about the professional part a little bit more, but you said origin story, so I wanted to give you the origins. No, I mean, <clears throat> what's fascinating for me is asking people, you know, similar questions and seeing the different ways that they answer them. This is this is one of the most unique ways I think anyone's ever chosen to spend that five minutes. It's great. It's it's super cool that you double down on the story of your sister and how that shaped things from just the way you saw problem solving to the way you saw emerging tech come in. I mean, those were clearly very for- formative influences on Absolutely. on who you became. And then to obviously talk about how it sounds like the dot com uh, bubble popping right at the graduation point, and the, the VC money drying up and jobs drying up, and then being able to kind of work your way into school again, the consulting practice, and then school, and then into Microsoft. I mean, it all it all. We each have a, a really interesting journey, but that this one in particular uh, is fascinating to me. So I'd like to dig into it a little bit more by asking you just some sub questions. So, yeah. um, were you born and raised in Colorado? I was actually born in Dallas, Texas, which okay. I always think is funny. Like people are like, what? You don't, you don't sound Texan. Uh, but that's because, <laughs> you know, at uh, about eight years old, uh, we relocated to Boulder, Colorado. So I would answer the question, hey, where did you grow up? I would say Boulder, because yeah. that's really where yeah. I went from elementary and, and- through high school to, and then I spent my undergrad there. So uh, yeah, like I said, I sold my, my practice, went to business school in Ann Arbor for two years and then got recruited uh, to Microsoft out here in Seattle. the Puget Sound and yeah, Pacific mm-hmm. Northwest area and have been really been here ever since. So yeah, All that's right. kind of my, 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 have... my path through the U S and you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. People say like, well, I can't believe you're still out in Seattle area. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a great place. Uh, I love it. It's, there's just a lot happening here. The technology scene is really robust and it's, it's gotten very vibrant over the recent years. But the weather is the one thing I haven't gotten used to. So it's like mm. Colorado has 300 days of sunshine, right? A year. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. almost the exact opposite here. So I still haven't gotten used to that, but uh, it's, a, it's a great place to, to live. And now with my family and growing up here, I think it's a great place to have a family and raise some kids too. Yep. So That's awesome. Um, did you have other siblings? Yeah, I had an older brother as well. So I was a middle okay. child. and Okay. Yeah. So it was and, an interesting dynamic as a middle child, right? Because the middle child always says, oh, well, the younger one gets spoiled and gets the attention, you know, you're kind of lost mm-hmm. in the prey. And I would call myself an uber middle child because when my sister was born, she needed the attention, right? So it was like I had to discount the fact that like, okay, this isn't just <laughs> spoiling a younger sibling. It, she really needed the attention. So I'm, a, I'm an uber middle child. I can empathize with any, any middle for that reason, for sure. Well, I mean, like, think about the hit to the ego. Like, it should be all about you, right? But it's not. <laughs> like, of course. It was about your sister. And you had to get over that real quick because there was no changing that, right? So Absolutely. Uh, wow, amazing. Um, that's incredible. Okay, so I like to try to identify a few things. You've already hit on this key one. Well, a couple, you know, with what we've already talked through in terms of, like, the early formative years, right? That yeah. sort of started to help these competencies sort of come online. I also like to ask about influences. So your sister, your parents, obvious influences. Did dad yep. or mom's um, sort of personality or profession uh, and guidance direct you additionally in any particular way? 
Uh, you know, you think teachers, coaches. I'm so grateful yeah. I can think of a handful for me because I, you know, I was I had a lot of energy and I could I could apply that energy in good ways or disruptive ways. And as an uber middle child, you know, kind of always looking for some attention, I would hey, if if it's good attention, I'll take it. If it's if it's not great attention, maybe I'll take that too. Um, and so I I could be kind of a handful and and. Uh, that that could be difficult. That could be a challenge for a lot of educators and teachers that I had growing up. But there were those I, I can just distinctly remember, you know, a handful who really understood that dynamic and were instrumental in helping me kind of harness and appreciate um, appreciate that where I can apply my energy, I can make good things happen. And they they help support that. I can think my fourth grade teacher was really instrumental as an example. It's funny to think like, oh, it's fourth grade teacher. But yeah, uh, some of these interactions can have really big impact. Um, mm -hmm. And so I still, I can still remember some of those relationships, but I'll go back to um, my parents and the kind of story I told before, which I, you know, the, the things that stick out to me are perseverance and solutions orientation. And so when I think about my mom and dad, who, by the way, are still married and still provide uh, full-time care for my sister, um, who's healthy and and uh, and thriving uh, with them. You know, it's there's a lot of really hard perseverance and dedication to put into that, and a and a consistent mind frame of looking for solutions versus getting bogged down with mm -hmm. obstacles. And I. I you know, I know I talked through that before, but I do think that that was really one of the big, biggest impacts for me in the way that I apply my and my thinking in the business world, for sure. And, and in my, of course, in my personal life as well. So, yeah, that's uh, that's how I'd answer that question. And and did did dad's profession influence you at all or mom's profession if she had one? <laughs> you know, I didn't really understand my dad's profession. Management consulting. Uh, so, okay, well, what does that mean? He worked for Towers, Perrin, uh, TPF and C, Towers, Perrin, Forster and Crosby. And then he worked for America Online in, a, in earlier days as well uh, in a human resources role. Um, he was kind of an expert in compensation benefits. As a hmm. child growing up, I knew nothing about what any of that meant. What I did know is that I saw my dad uh, and, and his work ethic. You know, this is when you would put on a suit in the morning and early in the morning. And you would go to work and you would you would put in the time and you would put in the hours. And I really saw his dedication to that um, in his his role, providing for the family, providing income for the family. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, you know, for me, the, the influence that my parents had in my work world like that is uh, just the 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 ethic of work and not necessarily yeah. the contents, because I didn't really understand and appreciate that until, of course, I became older and understood. Uh, some of the things that he was actually doing as a consultant and and um, on the industry side. And um, when you talked about when you were in this startup sort of VC situation right out of school. Um, yeah. Was that a moment where someone really took a bet on you when the odds were maybe kind of stacked against you? I like to ask that question because I think... Yeah. I think it's interesting to look back and be like, man, had, you know, whether it's your fourth grade teacher or whatever it was, was there an opportunity where you really feel like somebody gave you a, a leg up, like an opportunity that you wouldn't have otherwise had and they took a chance on you? 
Wow, I, I could, yeah, I can think of so many examples of that. In fact, um, uh, I was actually interning as a junior and senior in, in college, in my undergrad, uh, interned at IBM at the time. I was actually responsible for their, I don't know if you remember this, or you were even alive during this time, but the Y2K readiness, right? Like uh, oh, yeah. one of my big, big jobs for wow. IBM at the time. And just uh, even the way that I, I came up with that internship was because uh, one of the professors had really recommended me based on the quality of my academic work. And, you know, I wouldn't have had that opportunity otherwise. I wasn't out there like proactively seeking an internship with IBM. It came to me uh, because I had a door open. Um, as you mentioned, right, I, I then during my senior year decided, you know what, I've got a good appreciation for IBM and what a big company feels like, but I really am passionate about this early stage venture creation. Um, I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And my senior professor, again, because he observed my, you know, my work product and how it worked. And uh, he felt like I would be an asset to, to the team that he was building. And that was another big vote of confidence. Um, I wouldn't have had that opportunity to kind of pursue a venture-backed uh, startup that early in my career had it not been for my senior professor, uh, Jim, Jim Marlott who asked me to join him and his colleagues to, to build that. So, yeah, I can, you know, early in my career, those were really important, uh, important advocates for me who've had, of course, a big impact on my future career trajectory later on. But, uh, you know, I could, I could give you a handful of others as well. Um, and I just think it's so important in thinking about those examples that I also try to think about where I can help play that role as well, uh, mm. you know, now that I'm later in my career and, and opening doors where doors don't exist necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. Um, so it's, so were you, were you working on pets.com with Jim <laughs> or something similar during the dot-com VC time? So what? I'll tell you, this is the one thing I've learned in, in the world of early stage venture is maybe the most important factor, more important than the team, more important than the tech and the, uh, the landscape is the timing and uh -huh. it's the hardest to predict It's the hardest yep. to predict. Now, what we knew is it was the right time to, to start a .com, of course. Um, the solution we were focusing on was actually for behavioral health providers, you know, counselors, psychiatrists, and, and providing better access and better care to their clients uh, on the internet. What a novel idea, wow. right? Wow. Only oh. issue is, yeah, exactly. Timing was all off. <laughs> um, and so what we what we found is, wait a second, most of these professionals don't even have computers in their offices, let alone are they would they be comfortable uh, managing care, uh, you know, on the Internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, of course, this is now today, it's a it's a huge modality in, in mental health care services. Uh, but I think we were a little bit before our time there. And, and I've learned that lesson a couple of hard times through my career. Uh, and it makes me think a lot before I take my next role about, hey, is, is what the offer, offer, what the offering to the market is, is the market ready for it? Yeah, that's so, that's such a big point. I couldn't agree more. I want to ask you just to summarize for me, if you look back over what you've accomplished in your career, if you were to try to highlight 
I don't know, two or three biggest accomplishments? Like what, what do you, what do you feel most proud of having done so far? How do you kind of encapsulate that? I really, for me, I, I think of these, I'll call them key inflection points in the career, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fork in the road, like I have to make yeah. a decision. I just remember the decision to sell my consulting practice, which I was, uh-huh. you know, at that point, I was just, I was so satisfied with the, with the work that had been done. Like I said, I loved the creation process. I had built a very robust managed services practice, uh, um, an outsourcing practice, and I really enjoyed interacting with the clients. So it's, making the decision to sell that off to pursue my graduate degree was a really tough decision. I remember that being a real, a real inflection moment or fork in the road moment. Mm-hmm. And of course, now I would never look back. And I, and, but at the time, it was such a grueling decision um, to make. And it turned out, you know, that that journey into the, the graduate degree in the entrepreneurial program in Michigan for me, was some of the most um, important development for, for me as a person and as a professional in my career, because it allowed me to do so many things uh, with, with such a great wealth of resource and expertise at the university that I wouldn't have been able to do had I not pursued uh, that entrepreneurial program at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't go into this, but it, during that two years, and I would advocate any entrepreneur that's looking to kind of bootstrap a startup, they should highly consider this route. But uh, uh, I developed a business plan for technology that actually one of my roommate, uh, my former roommates had developed. Um, I took it to the competitive business plan circuit, uh, ended up taking first in the University of Michigan business challenge, uh, took first in the Carnegie Mellon. Uh, Tepper Business School entrepreneurial um, competition and was headed to Moot Corp, which is kind of the World Series of the business plan competition at the University of Texas um, before uh, we had interest from angel and venture investment. And that was another big inflection point, right? Because I had to make a decision in graduating from University of Michigan with my MBA. Am I going to take this offer, which I kind of had in my back pocket from Microsoft? and get my post MBA MBA, or do I want to kind of pursue uh, this startup, which was bootstrapped based on those competitive business plan earnings and winnings um, and, and seed investment. And that was another tough decision, another inflection point working the road. And I decided, Hey, you know what? I'll spend a year at Microsoft, learn what a very large business uh, uh, who, who used to be a small business looks like. And that'll be another great, uh, experience to round out this kind of focus on on venture creation. Yeah, six years later. <laughs> that's right. But then you worked your way that's back right. down. So that's right. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I wouldn't Did have you... again. I wouldn't have been able to do that had it not been for those six years. Like I said, I I had a real hardcore uh, learning around performance management, balance scorecard. You know, real rigor around managing a business, but in what was still and still is a very in, uh, innovative and entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial culture. And so that's part of the reason why I ended up staying as long as I did. And, and I, you know, I kept getting new experiences and new, uh, new scope um, uh, that was being put in front of me. And that, that, of course, helped keep things interesting as well. 
And then in terms of sort of the startup journey, sort of Microsoft up to the present, walk me through that just high level in sure. terms of um, the journey and the accomplishments. Well, so here was the flip side of the Microsoft thing after six years, because now I'm going to talk to, you know, founding CEOs and looking for a role in, in an earlier stage of the future. They said, look, why should I hire you? You're not an entrepreneur. You're, you're, a, you're a Microsoft <laughs> guy. Yeah. I was like, okay. Okay. So there's this stigma, right? And it's unfortunate because I don't think it's deserved, but it exists. And, you know, now that I'm later in my career, I understand why it exists because I've hired people from larger company cultures and they aren't always successful because you have to be able to <laughs> adapt and it's a much yes. different environment. But, yes. but I was like, Hey, that's not fair. I've been, you know, I, I, I have a career outside of Microsoft and, you know, look at my track record, but because of that stigma, I actually made the decision to leave Microsoft, this was 2012, to pursue my own startup concept and to look for seed funding for it. Huh. And so I went on the full other end of the spectrum. And part of the, the strategic reason for that is because I wanted to kind of really shake this stigma off entirely that I'm not cut out for entrepreneurial business because I've spent huh. you know, five plus years at a big company. You say it was to shake off the stigma but you obviously had, you know, motivations because you had a concept, right? So, yeah, I, we got to dig into that. Of course, you know, like, you know, that had to happen first. But, but again, the timing for me was right because I had encountered, you know, I, I ended up interviewing, getting offers from earlier stage companies, but I just remember the friction uh, of the Microsoft stigma, uh -huh. and, um, you know, I did again. This was lesson number two, hard lesson in market timing and the importance of market timing for early stage venture. Uh, and I'll tell you what the concept was, uh, a concept around uh, mobile wallets and, and digital payment. And the idea being uh, there's a lot of focus on marketing dollars, demand dollars from awareness to intent to consideration. But there's very little that's spent at the what I call the transaction decision. Right. And so the concept was, OK, I'm going to make it super easy to tell a consumer who's making a purchase which credit card they should use to maximize the their their points, cash back or airline miles for huh. that particular purchase. Because I don't know if you they, I learned a lot about this, you know, there's a segment of the market that, that I call hyper rewards users, but it's about eight percent of the credit card credit card holding population holds more than like twelve different credit cards. And, and the, the, credit, trading, the, credit card company, the credit card companies are probably less fond of those people because they're probably paying exactly. off their balances, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, they, you know, the credit card industry, they make their money off the balances. That's a big piece of it. But they make a lot a lot of their money off of the transaction piece. So when you think about it, they're competing for your swipe. They're mm -hmm. competing for every swipe, but they're doing it in a very unsophisticated way. And this is still true today, by the way, because you'll see credit cards. They've got uh, rotating quarterly rewards in certain categories. And that complexity, by the way, was what I was trying to solve with this, which is like, hey, I don't have to know which which card and which reward is the best. I'm, I'm going to be told and I'm just going to use it. And so there's an arbitrage opportunity. But the business model was that the equivalent of like a Google AdWords for credit card companies, mm -hmm. right? So that they can actually bid on your swipe because they're willing to pay for it in certain cases. Um and so that was the whole concept in the business model. But again, 2012, the issue was mo mobile payments, digital wallets, very low adoption, very, very low adoption. And even today, 
you know, we're starting to see broader adoption. Um, but at the time, it was just, it, it was an ill-timed pursuit. <laughs> and most of the investors that I talked to had just felt like they had already been over-allocated in that, in that spectrum, given what was happening in the market and the uncertainty around adoption and mobile payments and, and, and digital wallets. How, how far along did you get with the raising for seed? Didn't get there. Didn't get there, but again, if somebody took a bet on me, um, uh, I talked to a CEO of uh, an earlier stage venture uh, as I was trying to raise my seed round and said, wow, it's fascinating what you're working on. If it doesn't work out, you've got a job here. Oh, I love it. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Amazing. And, and now here's the one thing I, I came to really appreciate during this time is, wow, just how much, how difficult, even for somebody who's risk tolerant, um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I had two young children at the time, uh, was paying a mortgage. I, I was looking at my burn rate every month and just saying, oh my goodness, this is not for the weak part. Um, <laughs> and so I had a new appreciation for the real risk, uh, that, that entrepreneurs take. And I was very happy to be back on a paycheck or to have a backup where I could get back into a paycheck when I was unsuccessful with my seed race. But that was a great learning experience and another one that was just key inflection points in my career. Looking back, you, the goal was to get rid of that stigma from the big company stuff. Yep. So that, <laughs> well, I don't know what the size of the company is you went into with the CEO who said, you know, if this doesn't work out, come on over. Is that where you went after that? Yeah, Adrian Van Wyk, uh, CEO, South African startup uh, that, that kind of came over here uh, to the Pacific Northwest called K2 software. They were business process management, workflow automation. Um, mm -hmm. And the company was about oh geez, 300, 200, 300 employees at the time. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, that was my fallback. And I was grateful to have that opportunity and ended up taking them up on his offer. I only, I actually didn't even stay a year, which was kind of funny because you always, you know, like one year yeah. is key because you get your yeah. first cliff, your cliff, but yeah, um, it, it it wasn't quite worth it for me at the time. And what I really learned from that experience was that I also, the subject matter of the technology is important for me. And as passionate as I could get about business process management, workflow automation, it just wasn't, it wasn't really, uh, you know, it wasn't the top on my passion list. Let's just say it's, okay. uh, you know, the, the subject matter of the technology is it's basically taking a business process and streamlining and automating it. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting, but it's, I thought for me, I thought there were a lot more compelling technologies at that time. And so I, I ended up leaving K2 um, and joining a company called Aptio mm -hmm. for me, which basically financial analytics for IT, which of course, going back to my undergrad, I was a finance and IT major. I, it was uh, very much aligned with my interests and my passions. I understood the domain area and, uh, consequently, Sonny <laughs> uh, was Sonny Gupta, the CEO and founder of Aptio, was the guy that I had interviewed with while I was at Microsoft. So rewind, uh, uh, there were about 100 employees at a time. He, he was the one who who made it very clear that there's a stigma to the Microsoft thing, but it didn't prevent me from getting an offer. Uh, at that time, I turned it down. So came full circle. Here I am now. You know, post Microsoft, post failed raise on my own startup, a year at K2, and I came back to Aptio, now 300 employees, so had grown substantially since I first interviewed and 
had uh, another opportunity to, to join them again. And so I got an offer and this time I accepted it. And uh, yeah, spent a good three, four years there and, and got to build some of their core businesses uh, through their IPO. And so another great learning experience with, with a different phase of, of the uh, venture uh, profile and that kind of pre-IPO, you know, growth to scale phase. Yeah, but functionally, when you went from trying to do your own startup, and even back in terms of the stuff you did at Microsoft when you were over one of the Windows operating systems, what what was sort of the gravitation toward the go-to-market? I guess this did that start to happen? Sort of help? Did you help in a sales capacity with K2 Software and then into App2, or was it marketing related? How did that kind of functionally start to develop? It's funny. It's funny when you say terms like sales and marketing. Like for me, I still bristle a little bit because it's just they're all the same function. <laughs> in a, in a yes. sense, yes. They're Please advocate for this. I love, because, I love it. Yes. Because I'll go back again. Like the job it's is one mo- it's one growth. motion. It's one. It's one motion, right? Yes. That's right, and it's yeah. revenue growth at scale. So even as an entrepreneur, what's your job? Identify repeatable growth, uh, revenue growth, and and scale it. Yeah. So for me, it's kind of funny when you ask that. Like um, the, the actual functional role that I took on was product marketing, and. Oh, Yes, and product marketing, I think, when it's defined in, in the best possible way, um, which it gets defined in a whole bunch of different ways by different companies, but Microsoft had a really good definition, which is like, you, you're you really the general manager for the product line business. You are the miniature CEO and COO of that business line, and your job is to grow the revenue of that product line business. And so... <laughs> You know, the functional role in the title is product marketing. That's where I spent a lot of my time early in my career. But the skill that I was developing was was GTM revenue growth. Mm-hmm. And so now as a CRO, you know, responsible for sales, uh, pre-sales, the funnel or the bow tie, however you like to think of it, um, but the full spectrum, uh, it's just a very logical evolution of the stuff that I've already been doing because I've already been thinking and operating full funnel for a product line, and now I'm I'm doing it for the company product line, if you want to think of it that way. So in some yeah. ways, it's just a, it's not too much of a transition. So uh, product marketing, was that, would you kind of think of it that way from the Microsoft to the K2 to the Aptio? Yeah, I, yeah. And so um, after leaving Microsoft and, and the subsequent roles that I took at, at Aptio and at, um, uh, well, Aptio and K2 primarily in mm-hmm. product marketing, you know, during the interview process, as I was considering other potential opportunities, also in product marketing, that's where I also learned that there, there's a pretty broad spectrum of the way that that role gets defined. You know, in some companies, that role is really just about uh, messaging and sales collateral. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're doing some enablement, but it's very tactically focused and, and it's missing the strategic part and really the product line revenue ownership. And that's the key distinction. And so uh, identify repeatable growth, uh, revenue growth, and and scale it. I've got a good appreciation for that. Um, Sonny, certainly, he came from that space uh, and himself. And so Sonny at Aptio had a deep appreciation for that. And you could just tell. I mean, there was a high premium that these companies placed on that product marketing role and that function mm. bec- for that reason. And so I, I had to be discerning in terms of, product marketing because that that title can be misleading depending on how it's defined. 
Yeah. No, I love that you had uh, leaders at both those companies that really valued what that what that was all about. Yeah, that's so, a difference maker for sure. Yeah. So Aptio up to the present day, take me there. Yeah. So um, Aptio, like I said, it was it was great to see those those different growth uh, milestones leading up to the IPO and then post IPO. Um, I left before uh, subsequently before Aptio was purchased by Vista Equity, private equity group. Mm -hmm. uh, I think within a year of its IPO, um, but I was ready to look for my next role, and you know I was looking to expand what I had been doing uh, prior uh, in my career up to that point. I had managed teams, I'd managed you know what Microsoft would call an M2 manager of managers, and and that was uh, um, that was something I I felt passionate about. I really enjoy coaching and working with people and developing people. Um, and so I was looking for a role that would uh, that would have that aspect to it. And importantly, again, I was looking for not just a a great team and a great product, but something that the the market was ready for. And what I felt like was really timed right for the market. Yeah. And this was probably the broadest uh, kind of canvassing that I had done and looking at different startups, um, really across across the U.S. primarily venture back startups for taking on my next role and really good startups. I mean, like, you know, I look back now, uh, Qualtrics, uh, Auth0, which was acquired by Okta, yep. a whole, you know, a list of, at that time, hey, some might make it, some might be successful, some might not. Um, and when I spoke to Robert Wabi, the CEO and founder uh, of HighSpot, I was just, first of all, super impressed by the technology um, uh, by the team, by Robert himself, um, you know, who was, by the way, a, a known entity for me because I had worked with him at Microsoft. He, of course, wouldn't remember me, but he was a, a senior executive on the server business at Microsoft when I was there. And so I was, I had had meetings with him and I knew him by persona, but I didn't really know him as a, as a person, an individual. And as I came to know him during the interview process, and then also learned about the subject matter that he was addressing with the product offering, which was uh, sales enablement, mm -hmm. something I was intimately familiar with as a product marketer throughout my career. Yeah. Um, what I saw was actually, oh, this is the system of record for a product marketer. Like this is finally there's a, a purpose built platform for product marketing is the way I really look at the technology. And that for me was really thrilling. And I saw, again, going back to the market timing, I saw, okay, this is this is 20 years overdue, right? So the timing in the market couldn't be better. And that was, that was you know, looking back, uh, just a, a very um, fortunate decision to pursue that position and to join them to, to build out their marketing release stage. And, you know, I joined the company when there was about 50 employees. I think we were about two, three million and run rate at that time. And you know, I, won't, I won't give you any specifics now, but uh, you know, HighSpot's now around a thousand employees and has done very, very well, um, driven by a great product, great team and, and great market timing for, for what they, they were offering. So gave me that another phase of that venture experience that was a little bit earlier than Aptio and helped me kind of round out uh, what then led me to uh, led me to, to my role here at Crisp. 
which I'm now a year year plus in. All right. Okay. So let's talk about let's talk about Crisp. Um, going back to some of my notes here on how you initially framed it, um, digital voice communications and um, yeah, let's let's dig into um, the journey of of kind of the selection and. What's the, what the first year has been like? What have you learned yeah. and, and the selection of the, you know, because you were very particular about choosing these places where you could have That's a lot right. of passion, right? Yes. So let me, yeah, I'll try to unbuzz the jargon and help you. You can keep me honest because I can, I can, I can yeah. be guilty of that sometimes. Yeah, but for sure. But here's the, here's, the, here's the overarching premise is like, and if you think about even the early days of computers, it's the primary mode of communication is, is written digital communication, you know, whether it's word processor, email, it's all about written communication. That was the primary mode. I think we had a huge accelerant during the pandemic of moving to remote work and for voice becoming much more predominant as the primary mode of, uh, you know, asynchronous and, and synchronous digital communication. So, yeah. you know, the trend that I saw going back to market timing, that being important, like I believe more and more we are, are the primary mode of, of technology communication is going to be with voice, mm -hmm. right? And and less and less of the of the written text. Um, now, I don't have a crystal ball, so <laughs> and if I did, or and if venture investors did, this this wouldn't be as big of a challenge as it is to determine market timing. But for me, I really did feel like that uh, that was a trend that Crisp was uniquely positioned to capitalize on, and. Um, when I learned about how they were doing it with the technology, that for me was, uh, that kind of sealed the deal because it's a very interesting approach. And I'll just try to simplify, but CRISP is not a cloud-based solution in the, in the you know, sense you would think of a SaaS solution. It's actually an app that is, sits on the desktop. Hmm. And it turns out that architecture is really, really important um, for voice application. So, Crisp effectively becomes the virtual microphone and speaker of your operating system, right? And so any voice that's going in or out of the computer, Crisp sits on top of that. And, and that's a very interesting place to be. So even though the, the initial value prop and initial offering that Crisp focused on was uh, AI-based, software-based noise cancellation, which it's, it's done phenomenally at, um, what I saw is an opportunity beyond that to do a lot with voice communication um, and, and, and Crisp playing a role there to help, uh, help people in digital voice communication uh, be more productive is the way I would think about it. Better communication, more efficient communication, summarized communication, follow up and action items, all of the things surrounding what you use your voice for in business. And so um, David, the, the CEO founder, shared the vision and the roadmap. I had to have a, a pretty pretty high belief that they could execute against that vision and roadmap from an engineering standpoint, which I did. I was convicted. They've got a very talented team, um, actually based in Armenia, uh, PhDs and, and data scientists um, and engineers that have really pioneered this technology. Um, but for me, I, I saw just a really compelling and unique approach to something that I think is going to be more and more important uh, for the way that we do conduct business. 
Well, how did you start to wrap your head around sort of the TAM, you know, approaching this from a revenue perspective? How did you kind of yeah. take me through the, I guess I'm curious because they had a perspective before you joined and you had expertise to, to bring, right? So how did you kind of merge those perspectives together and what were some of your early insights into how big this opportunity could really be? Yeah, so so I, I joined Chris post-pandemic, but, and Chris was actually, uh, you know, founded and developed pre-pandemic, but... Mm-hmm. But of course, as as kind of the workforce went to virtual, remote, and digital, um, increasingly, uh, Crisp enjoyed a, a very strong adoption of the technology from individuals, right? So if you want to call it product-led growth, however you want to refer to it, but at, at that time, Crisp really thought that they were going to look and feel more like uh, Grammarly, as an example, uh, mm-hmm. would look and feel like a, a very user-based offering that, had an element of virality that would get adoption. And so uh, it, it was a case of like, if you build it, they will come. And mm-hmm. they certainly came. And Crisp had a, a really big boon during that time of uptake and adoption of the technology. Because everybody's working from home, right? You got your kids in the background, you got landscapers, dog barking, and you know it all goes away. I don't even use my mute button anymore because Crisp does the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really important. Still is, by the way. Still is. We still have a, a large portion of the workforce that is remote and virtual. But um, the application at that time was thought to be more focused on an individual user value prop and not necessarily an enterprise value prop. Although mm-hmm. for distributed workforce, you know, there were instances of that. And so Chris was really what I would call like the inbound machine. Mm-hmm. So it was like, hey, man, they're just they're taking fulfilling orders, right? People are lining up and. They want it, and the job of sales and marketing was just to fulfill it. And post-pandemic, of course, the world started changing a little bit. And at the same time, Crisp had started to identify a pattern in their customer base, which was a premium placed on the value prop within call center operations. So you think about it. Very no- you've, you've, you've called in customer support, like oh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you, oh, yeah. you hear all you the hear noise everybody. in the background. All the, yeah, yeah, right? Um, and, and that's hard for you as a client. But for an agent, it's also difficult if you're calling in from a noisy environment. And so Crisp's ability to strip noise in both directions, both inbound and outbound, big value prop uh, for call center operations. And so, you know, the time that I joined, this was this was where it had just started to identify this kind of enterprise, key enterprise use case. Um, and my job coming in was really to, I'll call it to move us to much more of not just inbound, but a hybrid and, and an outbound model, which we, mm-hmm. we hadn't really had. And so when you move to an outbound model, you have to be very, again, going back to the sorting hat, it's all about who's the target, right? Who's the target persona? Who's the target, uh, uh, buyer? What are the pain points? What are the industries? Uh, what are the use cases? What is the you know ideal customer profile look like, and what are the firmographic attributes uh, mm-hmm. that make that where Chris would be attractive? And so all of that that was kind of job number one for me coming in is to really define all of that. And I do and I do believe um, you know ICP the ideal customer profile th- that is such an important foundational element uh, at er- especially at an earlier stage. But for anybody who's in a revenue role, I, I almost don't know how you can do it unless you've really spent some time getting 
sharp on who your ideal customer is. And then you're going to have a good guess to begin with and inform guests. And then you have to continually optimize and iterate that based on the feedback you're getting. Real yeah. quick, how, how long did it take you to wrap your head around that part of the job when you first joined? Was that like a 90-day process? Was it a six-month process? I cheated a little bit. I'll ch I cheated a little bit because I was so interested and passionate about it before my start date. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, that I had been like, I had just been kind of trying to understand the industry and the dynamics of it. But I'll say, yeah, within certainly within the first 90 days. I mean, that work had to be done. I, I came in, I remember November, late November. Yeah, basically December. Um, one year ago. And, uh, you know, the fiscal calendar begins January 1. And so in that in that first 30 days, actually, I had to really work hard to get those foundational pieces in so that we could come out strong in our first quarter. And because I was more concerned not about defining these things, I was more concerned about um, getting the go to market in the organization to adopt it and to understand like an outbound motion and uh, the change management involved. And mm. so hitting that first 30 day mark, I would say, is kind of where I had to, you know, I had to set segmentation. I had to set targets, uh, which which really were non-existent before I came in in terms of like, hey, what are the what are the rev quarterly revenue targets that we're trying to shoot for? I mean, there was an idea of it, of course, but really, you know, when you're managing a sales team and and you need to drive growth, you need to you need to have goals. Get going back to the performance management piece. Um, you need to know you know you need to know what if you're hitting or not uh, otherwise you, you don't know <laughs> there's, there's, how, how, how big was the, yeah. the team when you when you joined uh chris um, so so total employee base about 200 and we stayed stable you know i mean you've seen you know what the climate looks like right now and in, in the technology yeah. environment but what i will say is coming off of somewhat um very moderate growth uh from the previous year and now, you know, in a couple of days here, we'll close our, our fiscal year. And we've done, um, I'll say, I, I am very pleased with the results that we've been able to drive. I, I came in and set targets that I intentionally wanted to be aggressive to the point where if we missed them, but pushed ourselves to hit them, that would be as important as, as hitting the target. Because... Mm -hmm we needed to push ourselves in order to kind of drive and accelerate that change management process. And so I came in and, and set what I thought were very aggressive growth goals uh, for the full year. And we have already passed those, um, I'm happy to say. And uh, yeah, we'll finish, we'll finish with the kind of growth rates that you, know, you would hope to see and want to see for an earlier stage venture. Man, and the great news is we've done that off of our core product set. The, the new offerings that I talked about are not yet commercially available. They will be. And these, these products, though, accent, what we call accent localization, the ability to, to real-time uh, adjust in, like an Indian English speaker's accent, as an example, call center agent to an American English accent real-time. Oh, my gosh. There, yeah, that is, there's a lot. Of, there's, a such, there's a big pain and a big cost associated with call centers. And it, this has been true for decades and decades, right? There's been what I would call very uh, primitive approach to solutions, which is like accent neutralization and modification training, like trying to take the accent out of your speaker. And 
we've taken a totally different approach with the technology, which is, look, this is not a speaker issue. This is a, this is a listener comprehension issue. And we're not going to ask the speaker to change anything about their accent. What we're going to do is make it more comprehensible for the listener by, by modifying it into their locally understood and native accent. And the reason that's so important is because you think about all of the training time and the time that you take out of productivity to work on accent training, that's one big cost. Another big cost is, you know, I might, as a call center, interview 10 people and the two smartest might be the ones I want to hire, but their accents are too profound and it prevents me from hiring them. So this actually has a massive impact on the hireability of an addressable talent pool for call center operations. And that's another major aspect. And so the net of it is we can now go from a product that has a pretty good value prop and premium and price point to something that has a much higher premium and price point because of the pain and the cost that it's addressing. And so I, I'm pretty excited about the prospects that Chris has. And that, again, going back to like, hey, why did I... When I choose to join Chris and what was I excited about? That's what I saw in the roadmap. Uh, some of these aspects that really take a, um, you know, uh, a low five digit average deal size and can easily uh, start to garner seven, eight figure average deal sizes in the enterprise. Wow, that's amazing. That's got to be so satisfying to come in, see the vision of it, taken from a PLG motion to a hybrid. Um, and so walk me through that a little bit more in detail, because I'm so fascinated, because I actually run across this a lot. I have a lot of people that come to me looking to hire people that can help them do that. I just did a couple of yeah. those this year, this year actually. And it's, it's really, really, really tough to find the person yeah. who has done it and can do it again, right? Um, so historically, you hadn't really, quote unquote, done that exact thing before, right? right. So I had not. No, um, in terms of PLG, no. but. Um... Uh, Open OpenView Ventures, you know, OpenView, who uh -huh. obviously has gone through a little bit of turmoil recently, but OpenView and Blake Bartlett over there, Kyle Pulyar, Growth Unhinged, uh, if you're familiar with it. Uh, I've, I've been very interested in, in the, the subject matter of PLG, um, but it is the first time that I've, I've had a true PLG product that I, I could work with in the go-to-market. And so, yeah, that's been a relatively new experience. And I've learned a ton. Um, one of the aspects I, I didn't understand and now have a deep appreciation for is the nature of the product offering in terms of uh, the virality of the product for product-led mm -hmm. growth. Um, and there's, uh, you might be familiar with the term, a single player app versus a multiplayer app, but, but effectively Crisp had been a single player app, meaning, okay, I download the app, I'm getting good value out of it as an end user, but there isn't anything really that hooks in, you know, my colleague. I'm getting value, but I, there's nothing really linking in that virality aspect, which is where product-led growth really starts to have uh, uh, profound revenue impact. Yeah. Now, a multiplayer is when you do have, you know, you have uh, an application that you are naturally extending to other colleagues that then in turn drives the virality and growth. And you can think of a lot of examples of that, like Smartsheet or uh, Airtable, right? Like you, you start to bring in other collaborators and then eventually you, you know, you've got all of these users that are using and, and you, you, you want to 
aggregate that into one contract and one master service agreement for the company. And that, that becomes kind of that PLG motion. But Chris didn't have that multiplayer virality. And so that was part of the challenge is how do you leverage PLG to drive that outbound, like you called it, the hybrid outbound and enterprise motion, um, because that's where you get a lot of efficiency and benefit. Now, it, it turns out uh, the new capabilities we've added, so uh, the ability to transcribe an online meeting uh, and to summarize key points, action items, th that does have virality because I now start sharing out the action items mm -hmm. with the other meeting attendants. So we do have that component now, but um, PLG for me means that there's inherent user value that a user can then uh, envision as with broader team or organizational value. And so where you have an overlap between not a user persona, but I'm going to make a distinction between a user and a buyer persona user. Mm -hmm. When you have a buyer persona who is using the product and is understanding it, the value, they will understand it for themselves and they will, they will uh, project that onto the value that they, their enterprise or their teams would get out of the offering. Mm -hmm. And so this top-down PLG motion, the kind of there's a bottom-up, right? Bottom-up yeah. PLGs, bunch of user adoption. This is more of a tops-down where I'm going to go get the key, the five key decision makers who have budget authority in this account. I want them to experience the magic of crisp. Once they do that, that's going to be an unlock uh, for for enterprise engagement and, and an enterprise rollout. And so that's the the model that I didn't I didn't understand and appreciate those kind of dynamics of PLG until I got in got into it and really understood how it applies in this go-to-market. And I'll just say, to, to ladder off of that a little bit, one of the, the my key learnings throughout my career has been, there is no copy-paste playbook, just period. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. all applied. And so you can read PLG playbooks and best practices, and those are all good. I mean, you should get the inputs, but there is there's never, um, you can never just apply what might've worked somewhere else uh, because it just, I've never seen it work that way. You always well, have to understand the dynamics of the product, the market, you know, all of the, the things combined and then, and then create the playbook. Well, so, so you have this, uh, inbound again, PLG product led growth, right? Um, users having a, a single, you, you know, user need, uh, making a purchase. Yeah. And so you have, you have this inbound motion, it's growing. There wasn't necessarily this multiplayer attribute that had been focused on much. And so when you first came in, were you thinking, not only in the in the early part of the job, but even as you look back over this last year, how much would you say is farming that existing account base and the new leads coming in inbound versus doing like straight cold outbound to like select target accounts? So a pipeline production has been about where it was about, like, I'll call it uh, a 90% inbound, 10% outbound uh, when mm -hmm. I first joined. Okay. And, and outbound, I say loosely because it's more opportunistic. But um, we've we've moved that needle to uh, almost like a 45-55 split, so that now pipeline the pipeline that we produce is about half outbound, and then and that's significant, right? That's a significant change going back to the change management aspect. Like it means you're not taking orders anymore and just talking pricing and discounting. It means you have to sell. Mm -hmm. means you have to to build the value. Somebody might have never heard of Crisp, never heard of noise canceling software, 
Never understood the application. What's the value? Um, is there urgency? So to, you have to create all those things. And that was a new muscle we had to build. Um, but in building that muscle, the, the rewards that you can reap are significant. They, of course, uh, they parlay over to the inbound because you still have to talk about and address pain points and value and all the things. But if you can do it on the outbound side, uh, you, you can be a lot more successful even with your inbound. And so the result of that has been that our conversion rates and our average opportunity sizes have increased as well across the mm -hmm. board mm -hmm. uh, over the past four quarters. And so that's that's really the trajectory you want to see. But are we at our uh, what I'll call the scalable and repeatable growth yet? Um, almost. You know, you, you might, have, uh, might I think winning by design is coined kind of this go to market fit phase, which I'm a big fan of. After yeah. product market fit, there's go to market fit, and yeah. you know that's that can be several quarters or several years. And so your the job right now is to compress this this the learnings to this go to market fit phase um, in order to scale them. And I think we've done a good job of that, but we're not yet to the other side of it. Where if you get to the other side of that, that's where you can enjoy those exponential scalable growth returns. And I and I have high confidence we'll get there. Uh, based on our current trajectory, and again, like I said, the roadmap that we're that we're bringing into the market with the products, yeah, for 2024, yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm still wanting to delve into a little bit more um, understanding. You know, you talked about the sort of five figure, six, seven, eight figure like growth size of a of a contract, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You came in when there's this sort of 90 percent inbound, 10 percent outbound split um, with pipeline generation. And you taking it to like 45, 55 and, um, you know, setting these targets and meeting, if not exceeding them, which is, which is amazing. Cause it seems like most of the people I've talked to this year, you know, they're 60, 70% yeah. to plan if they're lucky. Right. Um, <clears throat> so when you think about the, again, how you came in with your expertise of being this person that can compartmentalize really well, uh, put everything in the right buckets, right. Have this, this yep. like yep. unified strategy for the existing team. And you say, okay, we're going to do this evolution to a hybrid motion for outbound. We're going to choose mid-market companies with this revenue in the call center space or whatever it was. I'm just curious, yeah. how did you how did you go through that process of, like, you obviously had to get everybody organized and to buy into this strategy, right? So yeah. that was a huge, huge piece of it. But you had oh, to do your research. Yeah. You, had, you had to understand yeah. the target accounts. And then you had to take the existing team, sell them on it. And then you had to set these targets and then grow the team so did you were you able to hold off on hiring people in order to uh, actually with the op uh, there was that? a little bit of the opposite at the beginning yeah uh, the, the talent and and people at this stage is as you know <laughs> as a recruiter and at any stage it's 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 the key difference maker but uh, yeah. it also works in the other direction where if you have the wrong talent it, it can actually be a headwind and so right. uh, there were a lot of examples early on um, about four or five people that just weren't going to be the appropriate fit for the phase that we were entering into. And so the first job was actually to organize the team um, um, to remove some of the, the um, staff that, that wouldn't be uh, appropriate for the kind of phase we were entering into and then hiring key talent um, and, and really some key areas to, to set the foundation to build for the year. So that was the, that was kind of the organizational aspect to it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, er, you know, early on coming in, <laughs> I think even David and, and Arto, the founders, 
from their advisors had said like, you know, outbound is not the appropriate motion for crisp. And so I was already entering into oh, no. high skepticism uh, <laughs> with, oh, hey, here's this guy's coming in and says he's going to do outbound. Yeah. And uh, when we were able to show the, the progress around that, because, you know, I think there was low familiarity with a lot of the things that I brought in earlier on, like identifying an ICP, understanding addressable white space by account, weighted uh, addressable white space, and starting to assign target accounts and how you start to work outbound accounts. And all of that was kind of a, a kind of a learning journey. And the other aspect, I'll just say that's super important when you're looking to join an earlier stage venture uh, is the founding team's appetite for learning and curiosity. And yeah. I've never seen that hunger more probably from the founders at Crisp. They are, they're the most curious and kind of lifelong learning mentality, the growth mindset mentality. Um, and that's important because uh, they're willing to accept new perspectives and try new things and uh, thoughtful about adopting them or discarding them. And, th and that, by the way, in my last two roles, I'll say Robert uh, at Highspot was also just phenomenal at that. I had brought in a lot of new concepts there um, that weren't necessarily familiar, you know, above the line and uh, below the line selling, multi-threading, uh, some of these these kind of core concepts in go-to-market that are important but not understood. And I'll say if it weren't for the level of, of um, appetite for, for learning and understanding and trying new things from these CEOs, founders, uh, I would not have been able to do what I needed to do um, in those roles. Just because you brought it up, I have to now dig into it. So let's just yeah. help. Let's help people understand multi-threading in this over-under sales oh, culture. Sure. 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 Yeah. Again, keep me honest in my jargon because like I said, <laughs> it wasn't familiar. So I had to say, oh, what are these new concepts? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Multi-threading. So above the line, below the line selling is actually, I think, pioneered by a guy named Skip Miller, uh, proactive selling methodology. Um, and the, the philosophy there is like, look, in an enterprise sale, if you're only selling to the, the person that's kind of the champion, the person that's come out and reached out to evaluate, um, your, your deals are going to be at risk. Because the reality is there's another set of decision makers that are equally and maybe even more important in the deal cycle. And you have to make sure that you are influencing them and mm -hmm. you're you, they're known entities and you understand their role in the evaluation and purchase process. And so above the line, below the line is, is the idea of an executive, basically an executive, you know, VP and above, above the line, below mm -hmm. the line would be maybe a director and below, um, but the roles that they play and the, and the engagement are different. And so the, the philosophy there is you really have to have both of these engagements if you want to be successful in enterprise sale. Um, Multi-threading is is kind of the similar concept where, you know, if you're single threaded, that means you're just working through your champion, you're mm -hmm. working through a single person. And hopefully they're strong enough and your job is to equip them and you're kind of working through them. But the idea of multi-threading is that the more that you can fan out your influence uh, within an engagement, the more successful you're going to be because you're not reliant on a single fail point. Because you've seen a lot of these, right? You've seen like key champion, like, hey, we're deep in the deal engagement, all of a sudden somebody's let go Boom. or somebody takes a new job yeah. or they take a new role and yeah. there goes the deal. 
Yeah. And so when you multi-thread, you're you're kind of risk mitigating against that dynamic. Yeah. No, th- thanks for that. That that makes total sense. And so at Crisp, when you joined the team that you took over, the size of that just in general versus the size of that team now, has it stayed about the same? Uh, well, so I came on initially to head up the marketing function. Uh-huh. And my, you know, if you, if you think about the uh, different prongs of, of marketing DNA, my strong prong is, uh, like I said, product marketing and what I consider revenue marketing. Yeah. And so even as even during my interview process, I think David was kind of curious about me um, taking on the, the revenue role. Um, so coming in and doing the marketing role and applying that kind of revenue acumen to the rest of the go to market. Uh, I won't say I was managing the entire go to market, but in effect, I was because there's no way to be successful in marketing without deep collaboration and alignment with the rest of the go to market. And so I had already been working very closely with the rest of the go-to-market um, before my scope was officially uh, extended to pick up all, all of the revenue accountability. So I moved from a CMO role to a CRO role. So the mm-hmm. org grew from that standpoint organically, I guess if you want to look at it that way. And from a headcount standpoint, yeah, we've increased the entire go-to-market, uh, I want to say 50% since the beginning of the year. Okay. Um and uh, yeah, like in this market, I'll take that. Yeah. And uh, the more that I can self-fund those headcount, even the better, right? So if I can show that I can add a head and that head will produce X pipeline, X sales, uh, X services revenue, um, uh, that's a self-funding model. And that's, that's a great place to get to, to, to get to that, again, the destination of scalable, repeatable gro- growth. Well, how, how do you ensure that you were making the right bets for the size of the accounts you were trying to target? Was there any lessons that you can share around how you identified and made some hypotheses that you hoped were highly probable that you'd be able to get those accounts with certain cycles and deal sizes and have it warrant the resources that you, um, you know, delegated in that direction? Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's iterate. It's, mm-hmm. it's trial and error and iterate. I mean, there's like the faster that you can build the iteration engine at this stage, going back to that go-to-market fit, yep. it's constant feedback, adjust, feedback, adjust, feedback, and adjust. So um, again, with the outbound motion, not just the outbound prospecting from an SDR perspective, but outbound marketing in a sense where we had never really invested, uh, Chris had never really invested in events marketing and, and you know trade shows and conferences and things like that. And so we had some learning to do. And uh, I looked to others that were kind of in adjacent areas within this industry to see where they were investing. Um, We made some bets about where we thought would be a good investment, but we didn't know. And so we had to make an an informed decision about investment allocation and events. And I think we ended up doing over the year about uh, plus or minus 10 uh, different trade shows and events. And yeah, so it was it was it was quite a bit for something we had never done, and uh, we got some really good learning out of that. And uh, we'll refine our investment plan for events this year based on that learning. But um, that's an example of what I mean by like you know how important it is to be able to uh, execute, get feedback, and adjust and optimize at this stage. Were there and any that's tools- true for all of our demand channels? Were there any tools that were really instrumental in you helping to kind of def- define how you were going to approach the market? Well, so 
But going back to ICP, um, mm-hmm. and, and again, I just it's so such a fundamental piece of of a uh, enterprise go to market. Yeah. Um, but there, <laughs> and I've had a lot of experience working with with quote unquote ICP solutions in the past. But what those solutions are uh, are very expensive consulting engagements with with spreadsheets. <laughs> yep, I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've been through that many times, and boy, uh, for something that that like like I said, is is probably the prime uh, example of optimize and iterate and optimize for an ICP because you're just not going to get it right the first time. To spend so much money to to get to an initial ICP definition, and and then to have the consulting engagement end and Hey, what do we do with this now? Is it working? Is it not working? Yeah, that that's a very inefficient uh, approach to ICP. So uh, the the good news was there are some v- vendors, emerging vendors, that recognize this as a as a problem and an opportunity. And one of the solutions that we adopted that's been uh, really instrumental in this is a solution called Relevo, R E L E V V O. What the solution does is it accelerates that. <laughs> Uh, define and iterate process of ICP across firmographic attributes, attributes of the company or the account, uh, persona attributes of the contact or the person. And then the important, really important part is the, uh, what I'll call the readiness and the timing for purchase, which means that you're looking at intent, you're looking at intent signals, you're looking at a lot, a lot more indicators to say, okay, the profile of this account looks attractive. But maybe the timing isn't right. When you can combine the profile of the account, the profile of the individual, and the timing based on all of these signals is right, that's where you're going to have the most effective targeting, especially for an outbound uh, outbound motion. So talk me through just a typical uh, sales cycle. What does that look like? Kind of who's involved? What are some of the most common hurdles that you have to overcome? And what have you learned to kind of make that process easier and more smooth? Yeah, so um, think about call center operations, which, by the way, is only one use case. So the the other thing mm-hmm. I had to do in defining ICP was what are the other use cases that are important for our technology? So call center, you, you understand how that works, but call centers are also different. There are companies that all they do is provide uh, outsourced call center services, right? They're BPOs, business process outsourcing. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a certain profile of business because they are very margin conscious. They care about costs. Um, you look at an enterprise in-house call center, so they're not outsourcing it, but they're doing it in-house. That that also is tells you something significant about the call center operations because they've done it for a reason, right? There's some kind of a premium, a reason that they've decided to insource versus outsource their call center operations, and they, because of that, tend not to be as cost conscious, and so you have to understand the variables. Uh, to understand where the, the biggest value prop is going to be. And that's mm-hmm. just one example within the call center arena. The other use cases you, you can think about, and they're logical once you start thinking about it, but anybody in a customer-facing role, we have a high premium for because you're on a lot of different calls. Typically, you're on a lot of different platforms. That's the mm-hmm. other value prop of the architecture is you, yeah. don't, you don't need to integrate with Zoom. You, it it out-of-the-box supports every platform. And mm-hmm. I know I'm on Zoom calls. I'm on WebEx calls. I'm on uh, you know even the solution we're using to record this podcast. It's just audio that's that's moving in and out of out of the system, and so Chris uh, just supports all of that out of the box because we're at the OS level. Nice, right? So for a salesperson who's on a lot of different platforms, uh, or 
uh, a customer success person, we have a, a good value prop there. So that's another core use case, different buyers, different value prop. A hybrid workforce is still a very uh, real thing. There's companies who, as you know, like uh, you got Lassian's in a good example that have said like, we're, we're, we've embraced the remote work and we're gonna continue to embrace it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got a lot of people working from home. And so uh, that's another core solution is, is hybrid work, workforce in terms of use case. And the other one that you might not think about, but it makes sense once you, you think about it a little bit is professional services. And by that, I mean, anybody who is on a call and is billable, right? Like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lawyers, uh, accountants, yep. Uh, yep. consultants, every minute that goes by, you're paying something. That's a high premium scenario. And so the, the bar to have, you know, no distractions, to have meticulous and summarized meeting notes and all of that, there's a high premium for all that. And so you asked about like, who, what are the buyer dynamics in the sales engagement? It depends on the use case. That's, that's yeah. one key thing to understand. Yeah. Now, the primary use case we're focused on right now um, in terms of outbound is the call center operations. And in that kind of an engagement, many times you're dealing with uh, heads of customer experience, heads of customer success, heads of, of call center operations, of course, um, and some smaller uh, uh, BPOs, business process outsourced call, outsource call center operations, it might be the CEO. And often, this is going back to the multi-threading, there's an IT or technical operations decision maker that's involved. and um, you know, part of our value prop as an example is you don't have to buy expensive noise canceling hardware solutions like headsets. It's very expensive to do that with hardware. By using Chris software, you can actually reduce the cost of your headsets, which can mm -hmm. be substantial, yeah. which can be substantial. And so who, who cares about that value prop in an organization? Well, your CFO, right? Uh, procurement would, would care a great deal about that. But anybody who's spending budget on that and can displace that and put it somewhere else, that's a big value prop. And so that, in some cases, that's IT, that's technical operations. Um, and so, that, again, going back to like all, all these dynamics, you, there is no copy paste. You have to understand all these dynamics before you can build a, uh, an effective playbook. And so I think, you know, your question about what does the engagement look like, that's typical. And then, of course, my, your mileage may vary. So. Uh, Depending on the use case, depending on the dynamic uh, within a unique specific account, all of that can change. So I've been noodling on this question the whole time I've been talking, okay? Because I, I think you're a great person to ask because you'll have some perspective on it. Um, I want to ask it in two stages. So the first stage is as a setup, you're selling crisp on a per seat basis, like per user? Yeah, per user per month. Yep. Okay. All right. So that's the model. So in the future... This is a little bit of a crystal ball question, but yeah. you know we're both seeing everyone listening is seeing uh, ads pop up where there are these conversational AIs that are doing outbound selling. They're doing conversations. They're doing bookings. <laughs> they're doing all these scheduling things. And you know I don't know how the disclaimers of privacy and like letting the person on the end, uh, other end of the line know it's a robot. But in, in a world where uh, robots <laughs> are going to, you know, through generative generative AI and so forth are going to do more and more of certain things. That's debatable and yep. how far that goes and how fast that goes. Um, when will the call center world, let's just use that as the use case. Uh, how much have you thought about the future of 
call center operations going more robotic yeah. and how does that impact the future of a solution like yours? So I'm just curious. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And it's funny because I, I think before this whole generative AI wave that we've experienced this year, yeah. this was still a question. I mean, at high spot, we were, you know, Hey, when, <laughs> when do you, when do you replace the sales rep? And eventually you don't have to even talk yeah. to a sales rep to buy yeah. enterprise software. Uh, the same conversations happening now with generative AI. And look, the reality is <laughs> humans are, are always going to be an important part of this. Um, I, I think, you know, you're seeing and all uh, kind of these terms are synonymously used or interposed. Um, Copilot, yeah. uh, agent, yep. assistant. Yep. But all of them have the same connotation, which is it's they're not operating by themselves. Um, they are operating in some agency uh, that I believe is a high complementary uh, dynamic with a human being, with an actual human. There, of course, will be, and the same goes for sales, by the way, um, use cases where gen whether it's generative AI or whether it's kind of more of a packaged uh, engagement makes sense where there's high repeatability, uh, where there's kind of high pattern matching. Um, but the reality is on the sales side and for call centers, whether inbound or outbound call centers, by the way, because there's mm -hmm. right call centers that call out to do something, like whether they're a collections agency or whether they're selling something, and right. there's inbound where you're calling in for support. Um, all of those dynamics matter. And my belief is the majority of either use case is still not at the point where and I don't think it will be for uh, my crystal ball, at least for the next decade, where you're not going to have to talk to a human. Um, we'll see more and more use cases where you you don't, right? Where hey, I can just you know call the bank and make a transaction, or not even not even call. I'll just kind of go on the chat bot mm -hmm. and talk to the virtual agent and and uh, arrive at my solution. Uh, so we'll see more of that, but I, I don't think you're going to see kind of uh, core human interaction go away on some of these these use cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to envision this in my own mind and think like, okay, there's oversight, you know, like some person at the control center, like, you know, having multi-threaded conversations going and like little warning signals are like tapping in and fixing mm -hmm. things that are happening in real time. I mean, who, who knows what the future is going to hold, but that uh, it's going to be fascinating to to kind of live through this. So, yeah, that's. I, but your 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 vision, I think, is more the vision I have, which which would be like, look, it's the co-pilot who's there to in to you know raise indications to to provide guidance, provide direction, support, and uh -huh. enhance what you're doing, but not to replace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hope the promise of this whole wave uh, continues to pay off. There's a lot of headlines right now of like, you know, is AI going to pay off? There's so much investment going in and chips and. <laughs> And so much VC money going in, and big corporations are putting so much into this. You know the big, uh, the the big fangs of the world. Um, yeah. You know the big biggest companies well, out there. What I'll say is, you and you're no stranger to this. You've seen the the technology adoption curve, and you've seen this for a lot of different technologies. As yeah, I mean, since the beginning of technology, uh, there are cycles. Um, what I will say is, I think this is one of the more transformative cycles, but it, it will be a cycle has to be um and so the question is what's the, the cycle after this cycle yeah and the cycle after that cycle and uh it's exciting i mean like i said before i i pursued a career in technology because of the 
incredible positive impacts that it can have on yeah. a human's capability. Yes. And I, I believe that that's, that's becoming more and more true as to the technology develops. Well, you know, this series that this recording is a part of is called Going to Market in the Age of AI. And so it's not so much that I wanted to, you know, drill down on AI, AI, like, you know, through the whole conversation, but it's it's kind of there, you know, crisp.ai, it's already kind of built in there. And yeah, you're, you're sure. doing stuff that's generative AI oriented. And, um, you know, you're, you're on the leading edge of that technology. But as, you know, as Sam Altman and all these other people talk about like AGI in the future and, you know, such and such will happen <laughs> by the year 2030, <laughs> you know, yeah. the singularity, like, I mean, it's such a fascinating time to be alive and we're speculating a lot of things it right is. now, but, but it is, it's, uh, it's so, it's so interesting because the age of AI is not going away. I mean, software and right. prediction algorithms and, um, you know, recreating our voices in different languages. I mean, it is so fascinating what's happening right now. So um, what a cool space to be in. Um, and I'm yeah. wondering, as you look ahead to the next, I don't know, however you want to look at the horizon, is it 12 to 18 months? What are some of your top priorities? And specifically, how might our listeners, you know, of the various types that might be out there hearing this, how might they be able to play a role in assisting you in those strategic goals sure. over the next little bit? Yeah, well, the other thing I'll say about CRISP is we were kind of AI before AI was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you remember when cloud was a thing you had to explain to somebody like what do you mean what's the cloud yeah. um, that was kind of ai before this last year but now the, on the flip side everybody assumes ai means generative ai which of course is a very limited view of ai there's a lot of uh, other applications for ai and there have been for decades um and and that's actually where crisp's technology was pioneered not on the generative mm -hmm. but now that of course generative mm -hmm. becoming such an integral piece uh that's a core integration, core part of the offering that we have now. Mm -hmm. How can listeners help? I would love for you to help, by the way. That'd be great. But uh, I will say part of the reason I've joined the companies that I have, if you haven't picked up on this already, is because I personally love and have passion for the solution that's being offered. And uh, so I love using Crisp. And that's not me as a CRO or CMO trying to sell it, but it, it's... I can't imagine my life without it now. Like I said before, I, I don't even use my mute button anymore. That's one thing. But uh, to have a, by the way, bot free is another, uh, you mentioned bots. Mm -hmm. That's a core part of the on-device OS architecture is that you don't have to have bots because it's happening at the OS level. Mm -hmm. And so it's a non-obtrusive companion to all of your digital conversations. This conversation we're having. Uh, your online meetings, your calls in a call center. Um, and to have, you know, for a calendar that looks like mine, where you have back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back meetings, yeah. uh, and you try to do your best to get the action items and to send them out, and you're still human. And not only are you limited in your capacity, but there's bias. Like, I'm only going to write down the action items that maybe were important for me. And so to have the ability for me to focus on the conversation and to know that I have now my crisp AI companion, my meeting assistant that's doing all of the work to summarize the meeting, uh, to summarize the action items, to have those assigned to individuals who were part of that meeting. Uh, that's, that's a real game changer. And so the technology has real user value and impact beyond the enterprise value that of course I care, I care about because I want to our enterprise business but 
I would encourage you to, to download Crisp and use it. I mean, it's it. Uh, uh, like I said, the PLG top-down motion for us is real because once a CEO or COO or head mm. of operations is using Crisp firsthand, they just immediately understand the magic and the value uh, that it can represent for their workforce. And so I would just encourage all all of you. It doesn't matter what function or role you're in. If you're on a Zoom call once a week, uh, there's a big role that Chris can play uh, in that. So that's the easiest thing. And the beautiful thing about BLG is, yeah, uh, we have a free offering. You don't even have to pay for it, yeah. and you'll still get you'll still get uh, an hour's worth of noise cancellation, and you'll get unlimited transcriptions, and you'll actually get a handful of uh, summarized meeting notes as well for free. So it's a very low barrier to entry. And uh, like I said, I part of my passion is I get value out of the technology. So uh, that's that's the main thing that I would ask you if you if you want to help me. But I really, for me, it's exciting because I do think it'll be a game changer for you uh, in your digital voice communications and your voice productivity. That that was not a setup question either to to have you do that. But that no, I mean, thank like you. that's coming from such a genuine place. You know, I remember when we were talking and doing the prep for this recording. I recall you like you you were so passionate about this solution and and now I'm hearing it again and I'm like okay I'll pay attention now <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> um you know I was telling you I I just had a, a recent uh sickness and I'm hoping I don't cough so I'm I'm really curious to kind of test out the technology and find out if I was hacking would it would it delete it and not uh, have it inter uh you know get it be a conflict on the recording um oh no yeah I'm still wowed by the I have to ask sometimes are you sure you can't hear that because it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. One thing it can't do is remove the distraction for me. You know, I've got a noisy environment. I've got kids yeah. running around, dogs barking, but you, you're not hearing any of it. It's it's kind of it really is kind of magical once you see it. And you have like a recorded meeting where that's going on, and you play back the recording. You're like, wow, it is just not none of that's just there. So even the core value prop is cool, but the the new features, the new functionality, really are productivity game changers. So yeah, uh, I can hook you up by the way with a 12 month promotional free license if you want to. Craig and uh, you know, if your users have interest, send it to me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, I'll take you up on that. Um, I I've been wanting to ask this B two B versus B two C question. I don't want to do it quite yet because I want to make sure the question I asked yep. you pre previously uh, clicks. So to give our audience a window into how you're looking at the next twelve to eighteen months, what are some of your that you're willing to share? What are like what are your focal yeah. points going to be? Well, so one one thing that we didn't really um, get into, but is important to understand is Crisp is an oddly diversified stream of revenue for the stage that Crisp is at. It's done very well with really three different revenue lines. Uh, one being PLG, which is you know the individual user, the prosumer who's going to go get the free app and convert to a paid. Yeah. So that's a that's a key piece of business. That's a key revenue stream. Um, the second we already talked about, which is enterprise, and that's where we think a lot of the growth uh, will come from in the coming years. And so a lot of good investment in that outbound motion, enterprise use cases, uh, especially in call center with accent localization coming online and a feature that we're introducing called call center transcriptions, which transcriptions in the cloud is a very expensive process. Uh, again, an advantage of the on-device architecture mm. is that we we're not we're not getting hit with that that cost element we can pass that on uh to our customers and that's a disruptive motion so we do think there's a lot of growth uh that we can still achieve 
um, an enterprise and, a, and a, with the upcoming roadmap. And then the third uh, area of our business is what you could think of as an embed or OEM kind of a business where uh, if you're familiar with Discord as an example, yeah. if, you go into, if you go into Discord and you look at the audio settings, you will actually see the Crisp logo. And we process billions uh, of minutes of voice uh, on the Discord platform through our embedded offer. Hmm. And so those are three very interesting different businesses. And because of that, I, I, I feel very confident about, uh, you want to call it the diversification of our portfolio. Like we don't have all of our eggs in one basket and that's good and bad, right? Because you, you can also dilute your resources in your investment and it might be a better decision to heavyweight it in one of those business lines. But um, I, I'm confident in the mix that we have right now. And I think the flywheel that we look at um, on the consumer side and on the embed side, on the OEM side, um, really accrues back to the enterprise value at the end of the day. And so, um, you know, where are, my, where are our bets in the next 12 to 18 months? Uh, they are in the places across our three business lines that will ultimately accrue to enterprise revenue growth. And um, that's an exciting place to be uh, for the role that I'm in and for what I hope to achieve in the next year or two years. So is it, is it fair to say that those are the things that get you out of bed in the morning or can we go a little deeper and why you personally wake up being like, this is my thing? Is it the team? Yeah. Is I mean, like, there's there's so much I, to that, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love I love the expression that that um, uh, one of my direct reports had in my in a previous role. He said, you know, the best part about the job is getting to do cool. I'll say cool stuff with cool people. <laughs> yeah. That's the summary. Yeah. No. That's and great. it just kind of captures it for me because. You know, success by itself isn't that meaningful, um, but success as a team and success together, for me, that's that's the celebration. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I do like what gets me out of bed. I love seeing the team aligned and passionate about that mission, as passionate as I am. Yeah, unbounded growth, uh, solutions-oriented mindset, uh, uh, mission and purpose. Uh, it's such an important aspect of the team and the culture. And that for me is probably the reason that I get most excited in my day to day. You know, it's just getting to do cool stuff with cool people. Okay. So I want to ask you the B to C versus B to B question. Cause this is, you just said it in such an interesting way. You're like the consumer side um, versus the OEM side. Right. So, you know, you look at what you do and it's like, Oh, you're doing, you know, B to B, but, but really, the people you're selling to are the consumer of the service, Correct. right? So I, I guess kind of looking back over the narrative of your career, it sounded like when you were doing this um, bid on the swipe project, swipe right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that was that was a consumer play and everything else, if, if I'm tracking it properly, is, is a B2B. So did you have any particular thought process around avoiding B2C? Or was it just kind of the nature of how things evolved that you were more in the B2B side? And now you're kind of in this B2C, B2B blended realm. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Um, I, I guess it depends on how you define B2C and B2B. For me, right. um, I, the bigger distinction I tend to make is user value versus buyer value. And uh -huh. uh, I think it's, I've seen this in a lot of companies uh, where you, 
you don't make enough of a distinction between those two different roles and personas because you can be both. You can be both a user and a buyer persona, or you might be one and not the other. And what that means at the end of the day is you're getting some in, you're getting some individual value out of the offering. And uh-huh. so if you think about it that way, I don't know how that's too much different than what you would call B to C. Right. Right. And so <laughs> going back to my, my you know, first job out of grad school at Microsoft, Windows OS, I, I've been so familiar with, you know, I was a core user. I was, I was like, this is a consumer business, right? It's right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know this product. Um, that That's a huge part of, uh, of the value that a quote unquote B2B go to market and engagement looks like because there has to be both user value and buyer value um, in order to have a, a really viable long-term business that you can build around. Yeah. And the, the way that you're uh, marketing, selling, driving demand to uh, the user, I, I think operates and behaves more like what you would think of in, in B2C than it would in what you would think of as B2B. Mm-hmm. And so while it's not maybe a pure, hey, the, the revenue is coming just from the end user, which I guess would be more of a pure B2C. Like I said before, we have three business lines and we actually do have a revenue stream that is based on individuals who are downloading and, and paying for the paid offering. Yeah. And so in a sense, that is kind of a, like you said, a B2C, but um, having done it at crisp and that way there's not too much distinction that i would make between that and selling quote unquote selling to an enterprise end user because like you said before they are a consumer uh, at the end of the day well so often people are selling to a very functionally focused buyer or user right and they don't have the ability to say hey you all of you listening out there go ahead and download a free trial like it's always a pretty pretty sexy thing to be able to do that and add this you know, integrated multi-thread situation in large enterprises to unify, Absolutely. you know, a contract. So, um, so cool. Um, thank you so much for going through all that. And uh, sure. to start kind of winding down here, um, why don't we shift to a crystal ball question? So I know we don't know the future, but I want to ask you, what's your most exciting five-year outlook, uh, crystal ball outcome? What does it look like, whether for business for personal or ideally both, but you choose? Well, I would say um, my career journey is always going to take me back to, to building my own startup at some point again, <laughs> and maybe, maybe a, a few, uh, whether successful or unsuccessful. Um, <laughs> I, I know that's going to be part of uh, my career story that's not written. Yet. And um the fun part about this phase of my career, and I and I talked to people that are earlier in their career, you know, you think about the early early years of your experience are really about learning, and then uh, in later years, it's it's what I would call leveraging or applying learning. And of course, it's not just a switch that flips because most effective is when you're still learning and leveraging. But um, in this phase of my career. Uh, Working for these earlier stage startups, I, I, in my roles, I don't make a real distinction between the the founding team and my role. I, mm-hmm. I really do feel like I'm part 
of the founding team um, in the way that uh, my role contributes to the value of these early stage businesses when you can grow them uh, successfully. And so I get the benefit of not being, you know, the full risk spectrum, like I said before, uh, where my, you know, accruing credit card debt, maybe before I'm getting my seed raise, and there's a lot of risk associated with that. But I'm on a, 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 and a pretty risk, uh, uh, risk mitigated environment where I get to draw a salary and I still feel like I'm, I'm part of the founding team building this business. And that's been true for the last several roles, which I think, you know, um, getting to the level of more senior roles in an earlier stage venture allows you to do that. And that's a really fun and exciting phase of my career. So uh, five years from now, I, you know, <laughs> five years feels like a long horizon. If I'm talking to investors, they might agree. Uh, I think there's a tr tremendous opportunity that Chris has in front uh, of us uh, with everything that I've described. And I expect that's where I'll be spending my time uh, building what I, again, feel like is really partly my business to build. Um, and then who knows when and if uh, I'll jump out to do my own thing or what that will look like. But I expect that'll be part of my journey at some point in the future. So, okay, this is a fun question that strikes people a little bit sideways, but uh, what's something in your life that's happened to you in your life or career that few people will believe? Hoping you can <laughs> hoping you can come up with something. Well, um, one thing that I think is interesting is that um, I learned through uh, my lineage that I'm related to two American presidents. And so there's only there's only two options there. And that always <laughs> strikes people funny when uh, you know if I trace back on one side my great 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 however many grandfathers I've got John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And that's just something that is always a kind of a fun fact because. <laughs> uh, you see me, I don't, you know, look like I come from that lineage and I'm certainly not presidential, but uh, that's just more of a fun fact than it is like something crazy or strange that's happened to me in my career. Um, I, I will say, you know, I, I felt so incredibly uh, grateful for the experience that I had uh, going to pursue my MBA and the resources that I had at that time, I think the surprising thing that I um, that, that people always say is like, well, why didn't you go pursue that startup? You've gotten all that prize money and all that bootstrap winnings, and you said entrepreneur entrepreneurial path was, path was your thing. Why did you go Microsoft versus mm -hmm. the startup? And actually, the the capstone of my MBA was writing a a case. A business case study for would-be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs to actually warn them about uh, to warn about the potential risks of taking outside funding too early mm -hmm. or when you don't need it. And uh, that was kind of a key learning I didn't expect to have in my own career because here I was with a business plan with a great technology it was based on. Uh, social search concept at the time versus an algorithm-based search. Very innovative, great business model, a lot of great winnings. And ultimately I had to make the decision not to, to pursue that and to pursue the Microsoft route instead. And, and, and again, key inflection point, 
Uh, I couldn't imagine it any other way if I traced back, but uh, that, that is one surprising thing for myself that I, I opted not to take that at the time for reasons I didn't expect. And so I really do think you have to be discerning about that decision to take outside capital as an entrepreneur. And I didn't fully understand that. <laughs> Going back to the fact that I had pursued my MBA to learn about venture back startup, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was just a paradox where I ended up, uh, the thing I thought I was learning, I actually also learned the, the risks and the pitfalls of that at the same time. And so, yeah, I, I guess that's the one example I might bring to you. What's the biggest hiring mistake or horror story that you've ever heard or seen? And what do you think sh should have been done different? Oh, wow. Um, horror story is a pretty strong <laughs> it's a pretty strong connotation, but I've I've made some bad hires. I've also inherited some some sour apples, sour grapes, if you will. Uh, and in either case, uh, it is so critical that you can identify th that there's going to be an issue early on and to correct it. That's the bit the big single biggest learning is really taking fast action when you know you've made a mistake in hiring. Um, in marketing roles in particular, I found it super important to include not a take-home exercise, which you'll sometimes see, but uh, two things. One is to have a real-time, on-the-fly exercise, you know, almost like uh, one of the slots on the interview is one hour where you don't have any idea what it is. You, you get the exercise for the first time, and you have to complete the exercise. And that might be... You know, depends on the role, right? But they write the press release, uh, put together the demand plan. It's so super important to understand uh, a person's ability to convert something real time like that and to, to, to evaluate the throughput and quality that they have in that short space of time, in that constrained space of time. And so that's been one uh, risk mitigator to that. The other one is um, including some form of a group exercise. So what I often like to do is to include the exercise where an individual will spend time on it as a slot on the interview cycle. And then there might be 30 minutes or an hour where they can share that out with everybody that they spoke with on the interview. with. And it gives you an understanding of how they interact in a one-to-many setting or uh, a group setting versus a one-to-one -one conversation. And that tells you a lot about a kid that you couldn't otherwise understand unless you had that format. So those are two elements I've had to put in place. But <laughs> before I put those in place, uh, I learned the hard way that you might think somebody is a great hire, their experience looks good, the resume looks good, they interview well, they say all the right things, and then they come on board. And uh, there was one individual I hired in a senior product marketing role. And once I uh, started to onboard that person and see the Lack of quality in their ability to verbally, uh, or not verbally communicate, but but uh, written communication, positioning, marketing communication. Um, it was atrocious, and it was actually it was so shocking, based on how successful the person had had looked on their resume and had interviewed. Um, but that kind of goes back to the indication of you you really don't understand the work quality until you see it, and uh, having a some kind of a specific exercise related to the role on the interview loop, um, I think really helps mitigate that kind of mistake in hiring.
for my benefit and for the people that are hiring managers on in our audience, is it possible to do one more pass on those that sort of two-pronged thing that you do to be able to test the quality of their work product and give it um, traction with a little bit, like you said, like maybe it's a press release if you want to run, run with that one or something else. Yeah. Can you can you give us um, a, a, just a simple little example of that for the first pass and then, <laughs> how, and, and then how they pass it out to the group after? So here's, uh, let me just give you my experience with Chris because I think this one's kind of, especially for more senior roles, right? Um, and for startup and for founders, you part of your interview process and job is to educate them because they many times don't know what they're looking yeah, for. Right. And your job is almost not an interviewee uh, candidate, but it's a consultant. Um, and so uh, in the process for, for Chris, as I was interviewing, I was asked to put together the marketing demand plan. And uh, there were very specific instructions, a lot of things that they were looking for, channel mix, et cetera, et cetera. Approached mm-hmm. SEO, content marketing, um, in the exercise, and I didn't do it. And instead, I, I came with a different exercise that <laughs> wasn't asked of me. And, whoa, 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 whoa! Wait, what? Uh, what you, you, wait, they gave you a certain thing to do, and you said, "Wait, let me do something yeah. different." Yeah, I said it would be. Uh, here's here's the the gist of it is like, look, it would be irresponsible for me as a marketer to do this exercise without first having done these things because you you can't put together a marketing demand plan if you don't first have all of the underpinnings that we've talked about here um which uh, again they didn't really have a lot of that and so i came in and instead of doing that exercise i did the education exercise okay well here's let's talk about the go-to-market let's talk about the business strategy and then we can talk about the marketing plan and David, he came back and said, Jake, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't do what we asked you to do. Now, uh, to his credit, he had enough intuition foresight to know like, okay, there's something here. And so even though I quote unquote failed to do, to do what he asked me to do, um, I, I explained to him all the things I just told you. Like, look, it would have been irresponsible for me to have done that. Um, or it would have been a meaningless exercise. And so... Part of what I wanted to do is help you understand my approach to marketing in a sense of really it being a function of revenue generation. And if that's the way I'm approaching marketing, which is the kind of marketer I think you need at this stage, then I have to do all of these things first. And so now that I've done those, he invited me to do a second follow-on to now do the original exercise he asked me to do because we had done the, the foundational work. And so it did have more meaning. And so I actually ended up making it yeah, more homework for myself. But like I said before, it wasn't, I didn't really view it as homework as much as I viewed it as um, part of how I had to approach educating uh, the the founding team on what kind of executive they needed and what kind of skill set that I brought to the table uh, that could fulfill that. So I think that was just a my own like real world anecdote of, of how that played out uh, for my last, last role at Chris. So it sounds like the way that flowed, they gave you something, you said, uh, I'm going to do, whether you told them or not, I'm going to do something different. You did something I different. Didn't and then, I brought something different, yeah. And I think that's even, I think that's actually really beautiful because they were expecting one thing and you said, I'm going to actually reframe this whole situation and show you some authority here, but not, you know, um, and then you still did their exercise, which made sense once you had the foundation. Right. So, yeah. so then how would that then translate into that example of you sharing it out with the team? Would it be 
like and maybe you didn't do this at Chris, but you know, in another example with someone you might hire to have them go through your own interview loop, they could do what you say as an exercise, some, yeah. some, some sort of output that is related to the role that gives you a sense of their capabilities um, to de-risk the situation. And then how would it look like to then share it out with other people and explain it to the group? It takes on different forms depending on the role. But for me in these, right, I'm putting together basically the go-to-market strategy, the revenue strategy, demand plan. Right. And that requires, just like you would in a, in a real world setting, uh, if you were fully employed and that was your the task that you were hired to do, it would be the same approach, right? Mm -hmm. So let me walk, and I did, I walked the executive team and the extended go-to-market team through uh, uh, both of my approaches to crisps okay. go to market strategy okay. okay right um for me in hiring other roles um and so i hired a head of uh, pr and communications and one uh, at high spot as an example um yeah here's a scenario uh a hypothetical scenario that's happened now we have to address it with a press release please put together the press release mm -hmm. and you have an hour to do it and then uh at the end of the interview loop at the end of the day we'll have half hour or an hour Say, hey, just describe your, uh, you know, your approach to this. So we're not asking for anything incremental. We're just asking them to talk through the thought process. And that format does two things. It gives us an understanding of the exercise itself and the domain knowledge and all of that. But then it also gives you that other X factor of how uh, how they operate in a one-to-many setting and, and, and in terms of collaboration and communication, because it's also a time to kind of ask tough questions <laughs> and to see. Mm. how do they take them and how do they respond to them and, and how do they address those kind of things so that's the kind of dual format that that i think really has been helped mitigate bad hires but i'll tell you this again all the mitigation in the world you can still make a bad hire and yeah. uh so i'll go back to the, to the point i made before which is like I, I do think it's super important that you recognize when you made the wrong hire and to correct it very quickly yeah Okay, let's do um, sort of rapid fire on these. I've got quite a few that I want to run you through. So let's do a quick summary of your biggest hiring success story. Mm. Hmm. Um, so one of the roles that I had uh, while I was at Highspot, I, after I kind of built up the marketing function, um, I was asked to build out our partner go-to-market, which was non-existent at the time. And so... <laughs> Uh, I had experience working with partner go-to-market in my past, but there was no copy-paste to it. And it's a much different approach to leveraging partners for Highspot. And I had to build a team. There was no team. So I was employee one, and I eventually built out the team to about 15. But one of the core hires and roles that I had was uh, what I called a partner revenue executive which really wasn't a known thing in the industry. It's something that I felt very strongly about and how I had architected the partner go-to-market. And I took kind of a, a big bet and risk on the person that I hired who didn't have any background in this area. They were actually a, a sales rep, uh, this person that was a sales rep at PitchBook. And I, I just really liked the thinking and the approach and the DNA that this person had. And I thought that they would be successful in dealing with what could be a very ambiguous role and be successful in doing that. And uh, she has been not only super successful in the role that I hired her to do uh, and, and really big impact for the company, uh, but she's done very well 
um, continuing to build that out in her career there. And uh, I was just very grateful to have worked for her, but that was one that, you know, I just, <laughs> it was risky because there really isn't a, a profile fit. It's a new and ambiguous role. And that those are recipes for potential disaster uh, if you don't have the right person. So it just came down to having a person with the right sort of character traits and DNA. Yeah, I call DNA. Yeah. And that sometimes is the difference maker mm -hmm. um, by itself, you know, because uh, I asked her to do a lot of operational work. I asked her to do um, uh, what would be like marketing through to and with partner. And these are things that she hadn't done before. Um, and she was able to navigate and learn and learn by doing and was very successful uh, and helped make the team successful and the company successful in building out this new function. That's awesome. What's the craziest thing you've ever experienced as a candidate or a hiring manager or that you've heard that's happened to someone else? <laughs> well, uh, my interview with High Spot was probably the funny one because they had sent me instructions to go meet them at a different address and different location. And it was their old location. I, I actually thought it was part of the test. Like, how adaptable am I? How can I change the fly or whatnot? Yeah. And of course, I ended up navigating the situation. And uh, it all turned out great, obviously. But um, it, was a, it was like a major curveball. Because here I am late. This is such an important interview. It's critical. Uh, we were you know, at a critical phase. And uh, I thought that I was just going to flop the entire thing because of it. But it, it turned out to, to actually showcase how I could adapt and be flexible under changing circumstances, ironically, which they didn't design it for that. But uh, that's the takeaway that they had and how I dealt with that situation. Well, and, and even for you to be able to assess their adaptability, too. And like, how do they how do they take it out on the person that made the mistake? <laughs> right? oh, oh, for, for sure. Yeah. yeah. You're, I mean, goodness, if you're not interviewing just as much as you're getting interviewed, then yeah. be careful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What advice would you give to someone who wants to switch into our industry? Just any high level mm -hmm. thoughts on making a switch into the sort of tech space? Yeah. Um, look at where you're sitting currently and how you can um, leverage that experience. So there's often something right there in front of you that can showcase uh, your aptitude and the place that you want to move to, whatever the industry. That's one thing. The other thing you should consider is a full-time MBA program. Why? Because it allows you to make a, a significant career functional industry shift. Um, often you get to test run a potential career and function in, in your summer internship between your first and second year. And it really does allow you to pivot into a new industry. So I often tell people if you're considering an MBA, be careful what you're trying to get out of it. But here's some of the different things that would re really make that experience worthwhile. And that's one of them. Awesome. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who wants to make progress in their career as a in sort of a go-to-market function, such as moving up into leadership <laughs> or an executive role? Yeah, I'll just go back to, to to the earlier phrase about you know learn as much as possible early in your career, and then you start to look to leverage it. So mm -hmm. the more different and diverse experiences you can get, the better. Um, uh, the fact that you know I was able to to take on the head of marketing at an earlier stage and then to build out a non-existent partner team for two and a half years and make that be a formidable part of the go-to-market. All of those different experiences accrue to being 
successful as a revenue leader, regardless of what revenue function you're in. So that would be my advice is learn by doing, learn as much and as quickly as possible, especially earlier stages of your career. What kind of qualities do you look for in people that you want to have on your team? Uh, go back to, again, to what I said before, no problems, only solutions. You, you know, everybody can identify the problem. What I'm looking for is here's the problem, but here's three, four, five different potential solutions. That That's key in somebody's thinking. Um, and then the curiosity and the learning aspect. I think somebody who's really shows that they're hungry and, and always knows that they're never going to have all the answers or the right answers. And when they do, they change. That's the, those are the kind of aspects of DNA that I look for. And so if somebody's out there listening that wants to come work for you, how would they go about it? And what would be a really unique approach someone could take to really blow you away and make you want to hire them right there on the spot? Yeah, I think I had a misperception like, okay, executive CEOs, they don't like, you just get lost in the noise. It's just not true. Um, if I get an email, if I get uh, LinkedIn DM, if, if somebody asks me to go talk to them, I'll do it. And I, I place a big premium on the proactivity and initiative that somebody takes in that way. So I would say, go do that. You know, don't just submit the, the resume and, and hope for the best. Um, go talk to not just the hiring manager, but to other people too. Hey, I talked to five different people on your team. Uh, sounds like you guys have some great things. I wonder if we just have a conversation. There might not be an opportunity today, but would love just 30 minutes of your time. And I think you'll find that a lot of executives will be very generous with that. That's great. <clears throat> okay, 30 seconds on these two. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing earlier in your career, what would you say? Hmm. Be patient. <laughs> Be patient. Okay. Um, that's it. I, I don't know how else to say it other than, man, it's a, it's a marathon, not a race. And uh, I'm somebody like many in the tech space who, who don't have a lot of patience. That's part of the reason I like to be in a dynamic and vibrant industry, but um, it's, it is a real virtue and it does pay off. Can um, that, can that translate to trust yourself? There's some element of trust below being. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to, like, I don't have the perfect career chart you know, charted out from, from myself. I never did. Um, each decision is important and just realize that all those decisions will accrue to something great. If you're following your passion and your fault and you're, you know, learning your trade and you're passionate about it. Um, and that's confidence. Like you said, it's patience and, and confidence in that. Okay. Jake, 18 year old self. Okay. Let's go back there in time real quick. We're <laughs> oh, going to go goodness. back. We're going to go back in a time machine. You've been sent back. All right, I'm, del I'm delivering pizza for Domino's by the way. Just oh, this actually. is awesome. Okay. This is amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you've been sent back <laughs> in a time machine to visit your 18 year old self. You have 10 seconds to say five words. What are they? <laughs> uh, don't get it set. If you get stiffed. On your tip. Oh, we're going to talk about pizza tips. Okay, do it again. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a long game. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Repeat, what, repeat what you said because I didn't catch the tip piece. I, I mean, um, don't take it personally when you get stiffed on your tip. Oh, when you get stiffed on your tip. Okay, that's so funny. Yeah, and oh. it happens. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. Uh, okay. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap it up with uh, this final question. To give our listeners yep. a full 360 degree view of who you are and what really lights you up and recharges your battery, 
what are the two to three non-obvious, more personal things about you that you're most passionate about outside of work or any mm. fun or any fun rituals that you have that make life more meaningful for you? That's a really good question. Um, so I have four girls and uh, four girls between the ages of five and 13. Oh my gosh. Um, I love being a girl dad. It, it, there's just, uh, it's just so much fun. And it's, and it's, we're heading into the years of madness. So I can only imagine now that I've got one embarking into the teenage years, um, what this next phase is going to look like. But that's a, that's a huge portion of my life. And I get a great deal of energy um, out of just watching them as, as individuals and how they grow and how they form and how they think. It's just fun. Um, kind of personally as well, I, uh, I have an affinity for, for emerging tech, as I said before. And one of the things that I, I find really interesting, even though we've kind of gone through a cycle on NFT technology and crypto, um, uh, I've been in crypto for a decade. Uh, and a lot has changed in that time. But um, I'm just fascinated by financial markets and technology and where those things intersect. And uh, I've, I've been doing a lot to, to kind of on the creation side and the collection side of, of digital uh, tokens, NFTs, um, as well as physical collectibles too. I, I as I said before, I, I love and I'm passionate about collecting comic books and mm. old retro uh, uh, sports cards and other things like that. And it's just for fun, you know, more than anything else. It's I'm I'm not I don't want to leave a legacy of a, a bunch of stuff uh, as much as it is just interesting uh, because it's it's a dynamic and and changing hobby. Uh, and so I, I, I find a lot of enjoyment in that as well. How much do you care about the happening of Bitcoin and the uh, ETF coming up? <laughs> do you track that at all? Or are you more on the NFT side? No, no I, oh, I'll tell you a terrible story in some ways, but um, I bought my first Bitcoin in 2014. I bought 10 Bitcoin and at no the time way. they were about a hundred bucks. I, and so I spent 1100 bucks. And then I think it was like a couple months later, I sold all of it at a loss. <laughs> oh, I sold all of it at a loss, but um, you know, I've, I've stayed long since the beginning. And, and what I tell everybody is I love to diversify everything I, because you, you just don't know. And it's more just a sense of curiosity and, and learning and fun. Um, and so I've stayed in, in crypto, but I'm on, yeah, I'm on that side as well. But having, uh, we'll see what the impact is. I, I've also diversified on that side by investing in some of the the mining operations, which I don't know if mm -hmm. you've, you've been tracking any of these. If you look like yep. Marathon and what these yep. have done over the last month or so, my goodness. And you never expect some of this stuff. But again, it just goes to show you like, <laughs> uh, be patient. Uh, no, go back no. to that one. Yeah. My goodness. Um, and, and be exploratory. And so, yeah, I, I, I think having matters. Um, it will have an impact. I think you know, limited supply in Bitcoin in particular, I think is ultimately going to have uh, a big impact uh, in relation to fiat currency and things as you're looking at the future of, of financial markets. But super interesting space right now. Do you want to predict the impact of the ETF? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's going to get, I mean, should get the green light here formally in a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, I saw a counterpoint to what I think the prevailing wisdom is, which is 
if BlackRock and these ETFs start to kind of dominate the supply side of the market, then there's not going to be the same level of vibrancy in the market. It's going to actually kill kill off the cryptos, uh, which I thought was super interesting. I don't I don't believe that, by the way. I think it's mm-hmm. um, it, it's going to be a highly robust market. And I think just uh, the ETF approach. If I think about my dad as an example, he's been asking me about it. I've I've tried to get him into it. And just not willing to go there because there is a lot of complexity and difficulty still. This is just going to reduce that barrier to entry for so many investors like him that I think it's going to be ultimately a net uh, net big impact for uh, adoption and maturity of of cryptos and and, and actually using them. A lot of people think, okay, well, what are they useful? But I show them, oh, here's my Coinbase card and it's tied to my cryptos. And actually you can, it's money. It's real. It's not funny money. It's, it's it's real. And so the more people start to understand that and, and understand some of the dynamics uh, of this still emerging space, I think it's 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 got a lot of upside potential. I got to put financial disclaimers in here now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, <laughs> your mileage may vary. This is not, uh, I have no fiduciary responsibilities. Yeah. I'm not a financial advisor. All right, Jake. Um, uh- any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners, uh, including how well how they can contact you? I've got all that covered. Well, let's um, yeah. Unless, yeah, unless you have something you, you really want to you want to put out there. Um, any final thoughts? Anything and everything that you'd like to just close up with? I'd want to leave you space for that. I like the Ferris Bueller quote: "Take some time to look around; you might miss it." Uh, mm. Life goes pretty fast. At high spot, Robert had a one of the core principles that he said in. He, he called it enjoy the ride. So I think, you know, this stuff can be hard. It can be stressful at times. Uh, it can be disheartening at times, discouraging at times. And that's just part of the cycle. But uh, try to enjoy these moments because they do go fast. And uh, we really, those of us who are in this industry and have the ability to even participate in, in some of the opportunities that we've been talking about is is such an incredible gift. And so just appreciate that and enjoy the ride and and have a lot of gratitude. All right. Well, let's wrap it up with that. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, Greg. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Bear Hug Experience. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please give us a like, click, follow, or subscribe. We appreciate you taking a moment to give us a quick rating and a written review so we can continue to expand our reach and inspire the next generation of leaders to help make this world a better place. You can also contribute to the conversation around this specific episode by using the comments section at whatever platform you're on. And last but not least, if you have direct feedback, a question, or a guest you'd like to suggest that we have on the show, please shoot us an email at podcast at bearhugrecruiting.com or visit bearhugrecruiting.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to having you join us again on another episode of the Bear Hug Experience. Whoa.